You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Tim Burton, director of Batman, Beetlejuice, and Edward Scissorhands, now takes you to a completely different world. The true story of a Hollywood legend, Ed Wood. And action! He made movies like no one else. You want to keep moving? You've got to get through that door. Cut! Perfect. Perfect. Do you know anything about film production? Well, I like to think so. He had an eye for talent. I met Bella Lugosi. Well, I thought he was dead. This is the most uncomfortable coffin I've ever been in. No, he's very much alive. <laughs> you flying saucer? He had a passion for storytelling. Get me transvestites. I need transvestites. You're flashy. They want that. Okay. But they want professionalism. So Nick Fellinelli without losing naivete. What kind of a movie is this? It's science fiction. A heartbreaking romance. Brave robbers from outer space. Brave robbers from what? And he had a secret he couldn't hide. I like to dress in women's clothing. Panties, sweaters, pumps. It's just something I do. You don't like sex with girls? No, I love sex with girls. Wearing their clothes makes me feel closer to them. How can you act so casual when you're dressed like that? All right, everybody, let's finish this picture. Touchstone Pictures presents Johnny Depp. Martin Landau, Sarah Jessica Parker, Patricia Arquette, and Bill Murray in the true story of an unforgettable filmmaker. We're making another movie. I got the Church of Beverly Hills to put up the cash. How do you get all your friends to get baptized just so you can make a monster movie? And his legacy that will live forever. How do you burn this off? Shake his legs around. Looks like he's killing. Ah! This is the one. I command you! This is the one I'll be remembered for. Ed Wood, a Tim Burton film. Really? Worst film you ever saw. Well, my next one will be better. Hello? Greetings, my friends. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you're listening to The Projection Booth. I am Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Rob St. Mary. Finally, it's time to take action. Goodbye, penis. Sure. And now, for the first time, <laughs> we are bringing you Mr. Steve Schultes. Do my toes. My friends, can your heart stand the shocking facts about the film and the filmmaker Ed Wood? The 1994 film directed by Tim Burton stars, big surprise, Johnny Depp as Edward D. Wood Jr., a notoriously bad filmmaker who gave the world some of the most astounding films ever made. We talked a lot about Wood on our previous Orgy of the Dead episode, where he wrote the book that the film was based on. This time, we're turning our attention to the man and his early days of breaking into the business and creating his masterworks, Glenn or Glenda, Bride of the Creature, and Plan 9 from Outer Space. Rob, when was the first time you saw Ed Wood, and what did you think? I saw it in high school because it came out in 94. I was still in high school, and I remember I saw it the year after it played at the theater because I think it only played at one theater in the Detroit area, and I saw it on VHS, and my friends and I bought it, and basically senior year, we watched this thing on a loop. And one of the great things about the film is that it's uh, so quotable. There's so many great, so many great lines. There's kind of an inspiration, like I've talked about before, Mystery Science Theater being a great inspiration for filmmakers because you get to learn uh, what not to do. When we went back and watched all those Ed Wood films, oh yeah, just like that as well. Uh, the first time I saw it would have been the midnight premiere at the Ann Arbor 1 and 2, which is no longer there. I can echo pretty much everything that uh, that Rob said, like 
so quotable. Loved it immediately, even though I had only seen one Ed Wood uh, film up to that point, which was Plan 9. And then since then, I've gone back and, and checked out his other stuff. It's great. I also saw this one in the theater. I like how this movie like barely made any money in the theater, but yet all three of us saw us, saw it there. It's I like, didn't. Oh, you didn't see it in the theater? Oh, you saw it in high school on high video. School on video, yeah. Oh, I thought you saw it in high school at the theater. Nope. At the one theater that was playing it, which might have been the Star John R, maybe? Is that where I saw it? I don't know. For don't some know. reason, I wanted to believe that it played out way out at the Maple, but I'm not sure if that was the case or not, because, to be honest, it wasn't on my radar until, for some reason, I saw... I think it may have been the film threat cover or something, and the film had already come and gone, and then saw it on video. Yeah, I definitely saw this one in the theater, and I remember just, I was really touched by this film. I really, really liked this a lot. I mean, it was beautifully shot. It had a lot of those Tim Burton elements to it, but it didn't really hit you over the head. This was still when Tim Burton was somebody who I really respected as a director. He was still on that real winning streak. Batman Returns, which we've talked about on a a previous show. He had done Beetlejuice. He was Big Adventure. So he was really on top of his game. Of course, Edward Scissorhands, all these kind of things. It was before, and I know I'm going to get some shit for this, but it was before he kind of fell off the wagon and started doing things like Mars Attacks and Sleepy Hollow, Planet of the Apes. I mean, Sleepy Hollow has some good bits to it. Mars Attacks, I like the aliens, but just seemed like such a precipitous drop in quality after Ed Wood that to me this is kind of one of his last great films. It's kind of fitting that it was made about a really low-budget, terrible filmmaker, but it is one of Tim Burton's greatest films to me. Yeah, I think the fact that they didn't have a huge budget probably was responsible for that. I mean, if you don't have a budget, then you have to have... (laughs) good characters and character arcs and, and story. And, and uh, yeah, it really affected me as well. I mean, up to that point, I was a huge fanboy. was really sad to see kind of the downward arc his career took after that. To me, the biggest nail in the coffin is Planet of the Apes, but I, I definitely wasn't as in love with Sleepy Hollow and Mars Attacks as I could have been. Burton, to me, is great when he has one key character to work with, and that key character is a dark outsider. I mean, even Pee-wee is a dark outsider. You don't want to get mixed up with a guy like me. I'm a loner, Dottie. A rebel. There's a lot of things about me you don't know anything about, Dottie. Things you wouldn't understand. Things you couldn't understand. Things you shouldn't understand. (laughs) I don't understand. I think when he has one key figure to work on who's a dark outsider, he does well, because I think that that's sort of his own personality, or at least the personality we're led to believe. I don't necessarily know the man. And if you look at his films, those are the ones where he does really well with. I'd have to say his return, making good film again, was um, Big Eyes. So once again, teaming him up with uh, the cats who wrote this script some 20-something years later. I literally just watched Big Eyes. Like it, the the tape stopped like two minutes before I jumped on the phone with you, and I don't know if I need to see it a second time to like it, but I just found it really excruciating. It was one of those things where it's just like, oh my god, this feels like a lifetime movie, and I didn't even see his mark on the film. It just felt like anybody could have directed the, that movie. Okay, well we'll talk about that on another show. <laughs> 
that works. You know, when it comes to Ed Wood himself, I mean, I, I don't even know. I know I had seen Plan 9 up to this point, and I had gone through Blockbuster carried a lot of Ed Wood movies. Uh, they carried things like The Sinister Urge and uh, oh, some of the other early ones. I had never seen Glenn or Glenda up to this point, but I had seen a lot of scenes. I had seen all the crucial scenes, I think, uh, in It Came From Hollywood. Are you guys familiar with It Came From Hollywood? Yeah. Uh, I don't think I've seen that, no. Well, It Came From Hollywood was kind of a compilation of clips and previews. It felt very like something weird, kind of, uh, you know, like thrown together. And then there were skits in between that were done by people like uh, Dan Aykroyd and John Candy and Cheech and Chong and Gilda Radner. It was interesting to see these clips. And I mean, it was really well put together. And I fell in love with it came from hollywood when it came out i think i saw it that one also at the theater a few times just kind of one of those afternoon time killers and uh i had seen all the big scenes like ed wood handing the the sweater taking the sweater from dolores fuller and all that so it was neat to see those kind of reenacted by um sarah jessica parker and ed and johnny depp in this one we can't top it john but we must make people more aware you're right. A remake. That's exactly what I was thinking. But how? Climb on. Maybe we can work it out together. You jogged my memory. I, I did see that. I saw that a number of times. I just forgot the title. I think HBO used to run it quite a bit. The Amazing Colossal Man, I remember, was featured. And uh, yeah, that was a great, great little movie. Yeah, it was a lot of things that we ended up seeing on Mystery Science Theater before Mystery Science Theater was on. This film really focuses in, I mean, it, it takes a lot of liberties. It is not a, you know, it's a biopic, but it's not a documentary. I appreciate that. Like there are other films that I've seen where they kind of gloss over years and things. And it's almost upsetting. Like, Oh my God, there's a huge chunk of, of time that's missing from this person's life. Or what about this thing? What about that thing? You know? And that's when you said the word fanboy and that's when like the real fanboy come comes out where it's just like, wait a second. What about that other movie that was in between these two? But the plot and the structure of Ed Wood is so strong that they just tell such a great story by focusing in on Glenn or Glenda, Bride of the, the Creature, Bride of the Atom, whatever we're going to call it, and then Plan 9. And it's just such a great story, and it's such a wonderful story to me of friendship and passion and wanting to make art, you know, wanting to, to be a creator that I just really fell in love with this film. And that, for me, is the reason why it resonated so much with my friends and I when we were in high school, because we were all creative types. We were musicians, writers, uh, artists, filmmakers in some respects. And and to have someone who's that sort of like blindly naive, doesn't know, you know what he doesn't know, or he does know that he doesn't know things, and just still plows ahead anyway, uh, was just refreshing. It's a very sort of, uh, I guess, 20-something-odd uh, years later, uh, from when this film is set in the 70s, a real DIY punk rock kind of spirit. 
but it's not an angry spirit. Uh, as Johnny Depp said in an interview that he sort of based, uh, the character of Ed not knowing exactly how he was in the fifties outside of his performance, obviously in Glenn or Glenda on Ronald Reagan. He said that he sort of based him on early Ronald Reagan and this real sort of like blind American optimism that, you know, this sort of can do spirit. And, um, I, I think in a way that kind of resonated with us when we were teenagers. There you go again. I love his performance in this film. Just that never-ending optimism. Even when the guy is telling him that it's the worst film that he's ever seen when he shows him Glenn or Glenda. And he's just like, all right, next one will be better. That can-do attitude. And you're right. It is that kind of like all-American spirit kind of thing that he's doing. And then mixing that with Johnny Depp and his big goofy smile that he's doing. And that crazy like head shake thing that he's doing throughout the film. Which I guess I could see is kind of being Reagan. Though I saw Reagan's being almost a little bit more Parkinson's. But just that whole like... Yeah, when he's trying to decide something and he's kind of going up and down, especially when uh, Loretta King is is looking at him, like trying to get the role in Bride of the Atom and just watching him (laughs) like making up his mind before he finally starts nodding his head. Those moments are just they're gold to me. They're even they're better than even the best dialogue in the film, which, to your point, Rob, is just so good and so quotable. Oh, there's so many lines in here, and to me it's about the friendship among outsiders because Mm -hmm. he's sort of the king of the outsiders and the whole thing of him being able to get these, I guess you would say, like um, sexually weird folks for that time, um, the misunderstood, the misfits. It's sort of the land of misfit toys in a way. He's just got all these weirdos. No child wants to play with a Charlie in the box. As uh, the Sarah Jessica Parker character says, you know, you've just surrounded yourself with freaks and weirdos. Of course, they all have a great affinity for uh, a fallen star who's no longer respected by this period in uh, Bela Lugosi, played by Martin Landau, who does an amazing job in that role. And I have to say that after this film, I went back and I looked at a lot of those 1930s um, Universal films, because before then it was like, Oh yeah, those dusty old things, you know, that really wasn't my cup of tea. I went in and I looked closer at the stuff that he did and then also the Karloff stuff. Karloff? Nothing against Bela, um, but I have to say that I came to love the Frankenstein monster more than Dracula. Sorry, Bela. Fuck you! Karloff does not deserve to smell my shit! How dare that asshole bring up Karloff! You think it takes talent to play Frankenstein? It's all on makeup and then grunting. Bella, I agree 100%. Yeah, and, <laughs> and then I learned, which they don't really bring up in here that much, is the fact that he was offered that role. He was. Um, mm-hmm. They did makeup tests with, uh, with Lugosi, but decided to go with Karloff instead. So, sorry you did not get to play both uh, Dracula and Frankenstein's monster, sir. Rest in peace. That would have been crazy. That would would have been like playing, I don't know, Johnny Storm and Captain America. It just can't be done. Yeah, I love uh, Sarah Jessica Parker in here when she does that. Uh, I mean, this is probably my favorite Sarah Jessica Parker role. She just plays it so well. And I actually can really empathize with her in this role, this whole idea of, you know, finding out that Ed is a transvestite by giving her the script, the script to read. I, I like how 
easily. Kathy O'Hara, who eventually becomes Kathy Wood, accepts the idea of Ed being a transvestite. But I can definitely empathize with with Dolores Fuller as far as you know, kind of being upset about it, especially with all of her missing clothes and everything. And she's not part of that clique. And when she does kind of finally burst out and call them all a bunch of freaks and weirdos, I don't necessarily empathize with her at that point, but I can kind of understand where she's coming from because he has built that land of misfit toys, but it's so great to watch them. And it's so great to see them interacting. And especially when Ed is there and you've got the core of the pandit music going and he's, Ed is dancing in drag and everybody is all about it. You know, I thought maybe Bela would not necessarily accept it or maybe tour Johnson, but everybody is just all on the same wavelength. They're all a bunch of misfits and he really has gathered them together and created a family. I love the uh, the moment where Bill Murray uh, comes up next to her and puts his hand on her shoulder and then realizes that, oh, she she doesn't look like she's ready for this yet. Yeah, it's, uh, I don't know, uncomfortable, awkward. Making, uh, working in like indie film as I do occasionally, like that's kind of my nightmare that somebody close to me is going to freak out in that way. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and that's a nice little moment, too, when Tor Johnson comes up to uh, Bunny Breckenridge, and he's just like, you know, I thought you were going to be a lady. And there's just that nice exchange between those two characters, because, you know, Tor could maybe not accept this. This doesn't maybe doesn't fly in Sweden, but, you know, he he seems comfortable with everything, and he just fits in with that. And I love that. I mean, the scene where they're all really working together and going out and stealing that octopus for for bride of the monster that is just that's one of my favorite bits as well just to see those guys all working towards a common goal when uh, that moment that you're talking about rob when bela talks about how he could have been frankenstein and he's there in the cold and fighting the octopus and everything and just what's supposed to be a lake and it just looks like a puddle. I mean, just so many great moments in this thing and all of these things just kind of all around filmmaking as well. And just everybody pitching in, trying to help Eddie realize his vision, what a skewed vision it is, <laughs> but but it works. And I'll tell you that I love the films. I love Plan 9. You know, I've seen it so many times now. And there's just there is that sincerity behind it and now i i picture johnny depp as ed wood you know trying his best to make these things work even though it just feels like he's pretending to be a director throughout so much of this film well the other thing that was surprising to me to listen to the commentary track with the uh, the writers that it's basically the first draft of the screenplay um with a few things left out and i mean can you think of any other movies that have you know, basically shot the the first draft or they printed the screenplay in, uh, is it Faber and Faber? I think the, the publisher, and they just do a little notation when there's something that's not in the script or when they've made a change between script and final film. And there are so few notes and it's mostly just little deletions, like a line here, a line there. The one thing I found interesting though, that they did delete was, any time that Eddie was drinking. And I think that came from the way that Johnny Depp and uh, Tim Burton kind of fell in love with the Edward character and they didn't want to have that negative part of him. So they just kind of eliminated all those times when he was drinking and we get to see that kind of darker side of Ed. Instead, he maintains that optimism through the whole film and there isn't that 
other side, the darker side of his character. Well, I mean, the only sort of like other side or darker side is him concealing the, you know, the history of the fact that he likes the Angora sweaters from his girlfriend. And then there's this constant compare with uh, Orson Welles. He keeps bringing up Orson Welles, which which I think is a nice... Um, a, a nice comparable. I don't believe it was in the original book that I read that uh, he had an obsession with Orson Welles, but it kind of works in terms of the idea of someone who comes out of the gate, makes one first film, and it's such a monumental thing and had a big impact. There are these moments of just sort of crushing doubt where he's like, you know, he's trying to keep up the facade of uh, optimism. But there's, in his times when he's alone or with his girlfriend, he's like, I don't know, you know, what am I, you know, am I wasting my time or, you know, am I, am I doing this right? Or, you know, there's scenes, uh, like where he's in the, in the bar and he's just sort of sitting there drinking and happens to look out the window and, and see something. So it's, it's little, it's little quiet moments like that where you get that there is something else going on, uh, inside, but it's not played up. Uh, is is heavy and it's not as dark as it would have been as if he would have been a boozer and and from what i remember in the original book that i read i don't know if he was as heavy of a drunk now as he was past plan nine it seems like as the 60s and then in the 70s it really got bad are you talking about nightmare and ecstasy by rudolph gray yeah which i don't believe is listed in the credits but i read that book after i saw this film because i went and sought it out and it's a great sort of like Please kill me style oral history with all the people that he was able to interview to um, put together the story of who Ed Wood was and, you know, what his films were about and stuff like that. And went more in depth than, like we were talking about, his struggles, his psychological struggles, his drinking and all of that stuff is definitely in that book. Yeah, and that was where I really first learned about the later films that Ed would make. Um, you know, some of the the roughies and the the outright porn that he would go into. And I don't know if that's where, because I had been a fan of Orgy of the Dead when I was in high school, so I think that that's where I learned that he had been a writer. But I think I learned more about his writing career, uh, writing of of paperbacks that is. Uh, through the Rudolph Gray book, which, yeah, it's a terrific book. If folks haven't read Nightmare and Ecstasy, it is a absolutely wonderful read. And I think that's also where the whole idea of Bella Lugosi's swearing comes from, is that the person who is telling a lot of the stories about Bella Lugosi liked to swear. Um, that is, the person who is telling the stories would swear, and then that kind of got translated into Bella saying swear words. So I know people... <laughs> We're kind of upset by Bella Lugosi dropping a lot of F-bombs, but I found that to be absolutely wonderful, and I just really appreciate it. Yeah, Rob, you mentioned the the performance by Martin Landau. So good. This really, I mean, one of the few times where I could just agree with the Oscars 100%. I mean, especially like when they would show those the, the Oscar clip, and it's him doing the whole I have no home speech. I mean, that still gives me shivers today. And that that was dialogue that Ed Wood wrote all those years ago. It's like, yeah, that, that actually is pretty powerful. Home. I have no home. Hunted. Despised. Living like an animal. Jungle is my home. That I will show the world 
that I can be its master. I will perfect my own race of people. A race of atomic supermen which will conquer the world. <laughs> I mean, when you have a good actor, they can deliver the back of a cereal box for you. And I think that that, that proves out uh, in terms of Landau. Of course, they did some makeup on him, and um, and it worked out. I also think that his daughter gives a really good performance, Juliet Landau. And uh, she has one of the weirdest lines I've ever heard uh, a character say. Hi, would you like some water? No. No water. No liquids. I'm terribly allergic to them. Uh, oddly enough, that's one of the, the lines that I still quote today. It's, I shouldn't, you know, there's really no good place to quote it, but I definitely still find myself saying that. Yeah, those who so would know I. would get it, but those who wouldn't would look at you like here from another planet. And can we talk about uh, Mike Starr's appearance in here as Georgie, the film producer? Talk about another just series of quotable lines. Well, not only that, but I think I was around this time that I got into Mystery Science Theater. And I believe that there was a George Weiss film that was on Mystery Science Theater. So I think I had seen his name on a film before I saw this movie. So to learn more about him was kind of fascinating in both uh, the book and then Mike Starr's portrayal in here. And I think he does an amazing job with the limited amount of time that he has. I remember there was a scene that was cut down in there um, featuring him that, as you were talking about, from the original draft of the script, they trimmed him down just a tad. Mm-hmm. But um, but I thought uh, I thought he did just a, an amazing job. And we used to uh, do that dialogue back and forth between him and Ed where he's like, so you think uh, doing that, uh, you know, like to dress in women's clothes makes you competent to make my movie, huh? Hi, can I help you? Yes, I'm Ed Wood. I'm here about directing the Christine Jorgensen picture. <laughs> well, a couple of things have changed. It ain't gonna be the Christine Jorgensen story no more. Goddamn variety. I had to print the story before I got the rights. Now that bitch is asking for the sky. Ah, oh, you're not gonna make the movie. No, of course I'm gonna make the picture. I already pre-sold Alabama and Oklahoma. Is there a script? Fuck no. But there's a poster. It opens in nine weeks in Tulsa. Those repressed openers, they go for that twisted, perverted stuff. I have friends from Oklahoma, so I'll often say that to them. I'm like, you Okies, you go for that twisted, perverted stuff. And believe it or not, that whole, uh, the, the whole, you know, we have a poster thing still. Their <laughs> studio is still, still using that as a oh, yeah. impetus to make a movie today. I'm looking in the uh, direction of the asylum. The asylum, uh, all the Charles Band stuff. I mean, yeah, that, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if maybe every once in a while uh, Lloyd Kaufman uses a poster to come up with an idea. <laughs> well, go look at, uh, what was it, Electric Boogaloo, the the story of Canon Films, and I think there was a couple in there where they had the poster before they had the, the story oh, yeah. or anything. There's a whole series of, you know, what-if type posters where it's like, oh, wow, <laughs> what, what did this have been? The one performance that people don't talk about that much that I found to be you couldn't get any better than this is George the Animal Steel is Tor Johnson. 
the guy is almost a dead ringer for for Tor Johnson, especially when he's got his contacts in and he's rising from the grave in in the Plan Nine sequences. I mean, it just it was uncanny to see him, and I loved me some George the Animal Steel back in the day watching wrestling in the the early or yeah probably early mid eighties uh, and seeing him eating the turnbuckles and all that kind of stuff, and then when he showed up in Ed Wood, I was just like. Oh my God, is that that wrestler guy? I mean, it makes sense that he's a wrestler. And then to see his hairy back in the, uh, the meat cute that they do, I was like, Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And then once he started being Tor Johnson, I was like, Oh, wow. Yeah. Like when he was in his Lobo gear. And again, thanks to Mystery Science Theater, that's where I was seeing Bride of the Creature when, when I finally got around to it. It's funny. I think I saw. Almost all the Ed Wood movies, other than the three that they talk about in this film, <laughs> not all the Ed Wood movies, but the, the filler ones, the ones that, that they don't talk about. <laughs> so I saw those, but I wasn't familiar with the, with the big canon ones other than Plan 9. And um, little nod to the local boy, uh, George the Animal Steel, originally from here. He played football and, and also taught wrestling in Madison Heights. I tried to get a hold of Georgie Animal Steel. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to. I was, and I even tried to play up that Detroit angle, but no bites. His, his Facebook page is pretty interesting. I have to say, I think uh, I think George has become very religious in his later years, as they sometimes do. Got to get right with God before you die. I think this film also, because of the time in which I saw it, it made me go back and look up Christine Jorgensen because they're obviously Glenn or Glenda. Uh, was supposed to be the Christine Jorgensen story. And then, you know, as Mike Starr's character points out, uh, Christine Jorgensen backed out, started asking for more money than he was willing to give, and therefore he just fictionalized, tried to fictionalize it, which obviously didn't work uh, for Glenn or Glenda. But um, made me go back and look at that and all of the sort of celebrity around uh, Christine Jorgensen, which I think even by today's standards... Uh, most people would go, really? Like, wow, like back in the 50s, they made a big deal about someone who was one of the first people to have uh, um, male-to-female operation and all of that. And they were actually, you know, given time on the big talk shows and were kind of treated with respect and treated like a celebrity. I think most people would be kind of amazed to hear that because when we think of the 1950s, of course, it is a, a very um, conservative time. But I guess maybe there was a certain level of... I guess maybe curiosity slash respect for this uh, former soldier who felt that uh, she was always uh, a woman. Well, yeah, and then I know when we were talking about homicidal, that there were kind of uh, veiled references to Christine Jorgensen as well. And that was so many years earlier. And I don't think that she actually finally got a a film called The Christine Jorgensen Story until 1970. So it's funny that there were so many years between Glenn or Glenda and then that one. But then, yeah, there were all these kind of more fictionalized accounts. I want to say... Roberta Finley did another one as well, but I can't be sure. But I'm I'm sure that that was a rich vein to mine for a little bit when it came to exploitation. This theater will present an extraordinary movie. A motion picture that deals with the last sexual mystery. But it is much more than a motion picture. There are no actors or actresses in it. There are just real people. And what they do and how they feel, and what happens to them in this all-real sexual adventure 
you will remember all your life. Last year, I was a man. So do you think that this was kind of the start of uh, Bill Murray 2.0? It seemed like after this movie, he started, you know, taking on more interesting roles or things that you necessarily wouldn't think of him for. I'm trying to remember when, like, uh, because really it was when he got in with uh, Wes Anderson. That seemed to be the start of that for me. But this might have been kind of a a precursor. Or just kind of dipping his toe in the water to (laughs) test it out. Yeah, I mean, he had done some interesting work. Um, you know, we talked a lot about him on our, um, well, both on Hunter S. Thompson episode, we talked about his, uh, oh, right. his when we're the Buffalo Rome, and then also in Nothing Lasts Forever. But yeah, he seemed to be doing the, the more straight-ahead comic stuff for a while. But yeah, it was a very interesting choice to have bill murray in here and it was very unexpected and to the point where i forgot that he was in the film uh until i went back a few months ago and rewatched it again for the show and i was just like oh oh yeah i forgot about him as bunny he is wonderful in that role and he has some of the biggest laugh lines in the film (laughs) i mean especially during the church scene when they're about to get uh baptized so they can get money to to fund a film and they've got uh you know the famous story of uh Ed's wife's chiropractor portraying the dead bell of the ghosty in Plan 9 from Outer Space and when he's there in the in the, in the church and covering his eyes and doing a, a really bad bell in, uh bell of the ghosty impersonation and when Bunny says let's hear you call Boris Karloff a cocksucker <laughs> You know, the, the other one, and this is much more sad because of how um, he ended up in legal trouble um, because of his predilection, I guess. Jeffrey Jones as Criswell is really good in here. And, you know, I had loved him in films. I mean, I talked to you before, Mike, about how Ferris Bueller's Day Off was like on a loop uh, when I was a kid in my house on VHS. So, I mean, I grew up with him as the, the principal going after him but whenever he would show up in things i always i always liked him and he does a, a really good job in here as chris well as uh and and i don't necessarily know if uh the real chris well because i haven't read up too much on him uh understood that he was he was a scammer and he was just playing you know the show or if he actually believed some of the nonsense that came out of his mouth i know that he definitely sold that stuff very well. There were like the prediction. Uh, I want to say he did a prediction book and I don't think that there was an album, but for some reason I want to say there was, but he was a brand name, which is kind of funny that he could be a guest on Carson and all and do all this stuff. And it's like, yeah, I don't know if, uh, if he knew what he was shoveling. A happy new year. Do you agree as well? It is a great honor again to be with you and all of your friends on New Year's Eve of 1965. And I'd like to say greetings, my friend. We are all interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives, whether we want to or not. Well, that's... You can't argue with that. (laughs) My first prediction is that I predict that the year of 1966 will be a year of tricks. Deceit and deception, 1966. I predict a family coat of arms will be the new fad in America. Yes, a new family American pride. 
in your own personal family right here in America, and the family coat of arms will be your number one fad for 1966. That's interesting. You have a coat of arms? No, I, I have one. I'm not aware of it. But I'm going to get one tomorrow. It would be better if you want to, you know, come out right. I would prefer if he was the way that Jeffrey Jones portrayed him as. Jeffrey Jones is definitely a much better actor than Chris Well. You know, we talked on the Origin of the Dead episode about how you can see Chris Well reading lines from cue cards when he's doing his uh, opening speech. You know, um, it looks like he's three sheets to the wind <laughs> a lot of times. But then again, that was the later Chris Well. That was the, uh, you know, more towards the 70s type Chris Well. But he still had a lot of years to go before he uh, shuffled off this mortal coil or went to another dimension, as the film says. The other character that shows up in here, because this is interesting, because there are like all of these sort of like indie characters. You know what I mean by that? I mean, they they were important in their era. Uh, they were known in their era, like Chris Well and like uh, I guess Christine Jorgensen kind of plays in the background to a certain extent. But the other one is Vampira, and yeah. specifically, if you were in Los Angeles, you would have known who Vampira was in the 1950s, which um, you know obviously became uh, picked up by. Uh, Cassandra Peterson and became Elvira to a certain extent, much more punk rock version, much like the difference between Goulardi and the Ghoul uh, for us uh, Detroiters, Clevelanders uh, who remember show hosts. But uh, just to, to have her in here as well, and then obviously her role in Plan 9, it's, um, it, it's kind of fun to have that as well. Well, and I really liked lisa marie quite a bit i liked when they were dating when she and tim burton were dating because then she got to show up in mars attacks um and probably one of my favorite roles in the film and definitely one of my favorite outfits and then her even in sleepy hollow i thought she was very easy on the eyes and i thought she was a great actress i thought she played a really good part as vampira and i love that she played it as kind of this sympathetic kind of bitchy the way that she was doing the horror host stuff i thought was was good you know just that really acerbic kind of stuff and i watched a, a documentary um unfortunately i watched the wrong one apparently there have been a few documentaries about vampira and i watched the bad one which was vampira the movie from 2006 Apparently, there's another one called Vampira and Me from 2013 that's a lot better. But I will say to stay away from <laughs> Vampira the movie 2006, especially because in the opening few minutes where they're interviewing Vampira, she just comes across as such a kook. It's like, yeah, I don't really know if I want to spend 90 minutes with this person. And then just the quality of the actual filmmaking itself was like, yeah. And like the dime store reenactments of things. I was like, yeah, can we get some archival footage in here or something? The problem is, is that she was in the era of kinescopes. And I believe that from what I've seen, there's only a few minutes of that stuff left. So I, I think I saw a bit of one of her intros once in a documentary and that's it. It's kind of the same thing with Goulardi, which is around the early 60s. That stuff was like before the dawn of videotape so they only had like really shitty 16 millimeter footage of that stuff if anyone saved it i think it's kind of a good choice to end it where they end it you know because as we talked about if you read the rudolph gray book nightmare of ecstasy it really falls apart after plan nine for him um he just i mean maybe the last great thing that he did is orgy of the dead which he didn't even direct he wrote and and all that stuff but 
after that, it's just, uh, like you were saying, hardcore and roughies and drinking and cheap dime store porn novels and all of that stuff, which I'm sure is fascinating, but doesn't necessarily make him out to be a hero in the end. Do you mention the uh, Orson Welles bit? And I have to say that the I love the Orson Welles scene. You know, it is such a great moment in the film. And I love that Maurice LaMarche is doing the Orson Welles voice because he does that so well. And he had done it so well as the brain on Pinky and the Brain. And now, though, when I see it, because when I saw it the first time with Vincent D'Onofrio and the voice, for some reason, when I saw it theatrically, it didn't ring false to me and now when i watch it and i and i hear the brain's voice coming out of him i'm just like yeah that really just doesn't work i wonder what d'onofrio's real voice would have sounded like in that situation see i thought d'onofrio played orson wells at one point or am i getting i think he did or am i getting confused with someone else because i think when i saw I want to say that he played Wells in Cradle Will Rock, but I don't know if that's true or not or if it's an implanted memory. I'm sure someone can look it up on IMDb. I know what it was, Rob. He was in a short called Five Minutes, Mr. Wells, where it was just a, a real quick short film, and he was talking. I want to I can't remember what it was, but it was right before he was supposed to go on to a performance, and it was kind of one of these like backstage, uh, and he's talking about where things are at with his career. So it was almost like Ed Wood, where he was talking about, you know, they want me to use Charlton Heston as a Mexican, but it was a, a slightly different point in his career. Which I absolutely love that line because I think it was a few years later that they did the recut of uh, Touch of Evil. And then I yeah. got to see the recut of Touch of Evil, and I kind of laughed because, yeah, they did want him to use Charlton Heston as a Mexican, but it actually worked out pretty well. <laughs> Touch of Evil's pretty good. Yeah, and if memory serves, Charlton Heston became one of Wells' big supporters towards the end of his life. He was really, like, fighting for him. But I could be wrong about that, so don't quote me. Please, whatever you do, don't quote me. We know a remote farm in Lincolnshire where Mrs. Buckley lives. Every July, peas grow there. You really mean that? Uh, yeah, but if you could start a half second later. Don't you think you really want to say July over the snow? Isn't that the fun of it? I think it's so nice that you see a snow-covered field and say every July peas grow there. Um. We're talking about them growing and she's picked them. Well, we want to be out of that snowy field. But I was out. We were onto a can of peas, a big dish of peas when I said in July. Oh, sorry. Yes, always. I'm always past that. Y you are? Yes. Um, can you emphasize a bit in, in July? Why, that doesn't make any sense. Sorry. There's no known way of saying an English sentence in which you begin a sentence within and emphasize it. Get me a jury and show me how you can say, in July, and I'll make cheese for you. That's just idiotic, if you'll forgive my saying so. That's just stupid. In July. Impossible. Meaningless. And the funniest line, though, to me, has to be when they're reading the review of Ed's play at the very beginning of the film... And Sarah Jessica Parker asks, Do I really have a face like a horse? And then I just kind of move on. And then the other one is, She said that the costumes are very realistic. See, that's positive. So he's just constantly trying to find the positivity in the review. 
Oh, yeah. And then later on, when he's talking to Georgie, and he says, it was praise for its realism. I had to go and look up what uh, look up the definition of ostentatious after that, <laughs> after that first scene. Well, uh, if we're talking about cast members, the cameraman is... I love that guy. Voice of Aquaman on Super Friends and the Back to the Future bartender guy. And uh, I just... I, I love the uh, the colorblind line. Eddie? Yes? Which dress do you like better? Huh. I don't know. Say, Bill, which dress works better for you, the red one or the green one? Which one is the red one? What do you mean? I mean, I can't see the difference. I'm colorblind. But I kind of like the dark gray one. And really, I don't know if being colorblind helps to shoot in black and white or not, but... I, I still have always found that line hilarious. It took me so long to figure out who the doctor who's helping out Bela at the the institute, who he was, because every time he spoke, I was like, I know that voice. I know that voice. Where do I know that voice? Finally, today, I looked him up, and I didn't realize that he was the guy who's selling Quaid on the trip to Mars through recall. So he's the guy who's like, yeah, he's the guy who's like, you know, what's the same thing about every vacation? It's you. So yeah, that guy's Ray Baker. So I was very happy to finally figure that out because like I said, his voice was just driving me nuts. He always uh, reminded me of one of the animal house guys, one of the fraternity guys. And I thought maybe that's where I'd seen him, but I never bothered to, to look it up and check. And then I was very glad too. the guy that plays Conrad Brooks, Brent Hinckley. I finally looked him up too, because I was just like, man, that guy's familiar. Where do I know him from? Well, I've only seen him about 300 times because he's one of the policemen at that place where they're keeping Hannibal Lecter in the big cage. He's one of those policemen and he's got some good lines like before Starling goes up to see Hannibal Lecter again. And he's the guy who has to talk to Bill Pembroke who just had his face ripped off. So, you know, God damn it. That's Bill Pembroke. You talk to him. (laughs) Wow. Rich, rich, rich with character actors in this film. There's nobody that I think is dead weight in this movie. Really? No, there's not even any like lines where I cringe when I hear them. You know, I've only seen this film, uh, you know, a couple dozen times, and by that time, you come up with like, oh man, that that one just doesn't ring true. But every single line just hits in this film for me. Speaking of good lines, we're going to take a break and play back some interviews. The first one is with Larry Karaszewski, who co-wrote the screenplay of Ed Wood. The second one is with Lydia Kavina, who played some of the music. She was the theremin player on the soundtrack. We'll also hear again from our good friend Mike Starr, who played Georgie. And then we'll hear from Andrew Rausch, who is one of the co-writers of a book about Ed Wood that I highly recommend. Now, you will hear those after these brief messages. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. 
It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. Movies need only three things. Badasses. You tell me who you want done, and I'll do the hell out of it. A chick with drive who don't take no jive. Boobs. Do you know that the female breast, known to be the source of life since Eve, can be deadly weapons? And body counts. Mathematics of Murder and Menace. The BBNBC podcast discusses lesser-known action, exploitation, and horror cult cinema. You can find the show on iTunes, Stitcher Smart Radio, and SoundCloud by searching for BBNBC Podcast. You can also listen to each episode directly on the show's website at badassesboobsandbodycounts.com. Got the goddamn message? Let's go to work. Hey fans, this is Reverend Scott. Just want to tell you about Outside the Cinema. Great company. They review cult films, any cult film, every cult film. And it's something you should tune into. So if you get a chance, go to the website, look these guys up, Outside the Cinema, and find out what the hot cult films are today, what's going on. These guys are right on the cutting edge of reviewing cult movies. And if you're a cult member, or you want to be a cult member, you're thinking about being a cult member, your mom's a cult member, your dad's a cult member, your damn mother-in-law's a cult member, tune in outside the cinema, baby, and you'll find out what's going on. Reverend Scott, and that's out. This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resents at ProudlyResents.com, and you are listening to my favorite, the number one, The Projection Booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show. You lucky son of a gun. How did you get into writing? I was always interested in film. Uh, I grew up in South Bend, Indiana. My my mother was a waitress. My dad worked in a factory. So it was my really kind of real connection to film. Early on, my parents got divorced. My dad had me like one night a week, and he really didn't know what to do with a kid. And and um, uh, we would sort of go, um, I would talk him into taking me to the drive-in or the grindhouse, and he would drink a little beer and fall asleep, and I would watch just all the all the nuttiness of the uh, cinema of the 1970s and became completely um, addicted. So I just, I just loved film for a very, very... Um, of the age, and, and the thing about writing is it's the one thing you don't necessarily need um, permission to do. If you want to make a feature film, you have to find somebody who will give you the money to make a feature film. Writing, you just need a blank piece of paper. I managed to get myself, I mean, I was a very young filmmaker, I mean, I had, you know, I had a Super 8 camera and all that kind of stuff, and I became just kind of obsessed with uh, with, with making little movies, and I, and I hooked up with a uh, television series that was uh, in the area called Beyond Our Control, 
which was a, a, a half-hour sketch comedy show. Um, and really, back when that didn't occur, it actually was uh, the show started before uh, Saturday Night Live or Second City TV, but very much in that in that vein. Uh, and it was run by high school students. Initially started as like a bit of a community outreach kind of a doing an achievement program, but wound up taking on much much more, becoming quite a uh, a little phenomenon. It won a Peabody. It won the uh, Chicago International Film Festival. Um, and it was a weekly half-hour TV show and run by uh, high school students. And it essentially holds up really well. But the um, bunch of people came out of it. Myself, Daniel Waters, who wrote Heathers and Batman Returns, uh, Dean Norris, who was on Breaking Bad, The Tank, Chris Webber wrote Toy Story 2, Dave Simpkins, who wrote Ventures in Babysitting, uh, the couple that invented Blue's Clues, so there was a lot of people out there who um, who did uh, uh, you know amazing work back in the small town who managed to well, basically because we were taught very early to be professional. I mean, it was one of those things where I barely even think of myself as going to high school as much as my high school experience was this television show. And we would write on Monday and Tuesday, cast on Wednesday, rewrite on Thursday, build on Friday, shoot on Saturday, and it would air on Sunday afternoon. And this was high school students doing this? Yes, it is. That's amazing. It's very funny. It's still pretty funny. It had a great premise, which was it's called Beyond Our Control, and basically it was you someone that's taking over your TV for a half hour. The set of sketch comedy is sketches that go on too long, or you know, like the way SNL has to have a when they do a sketch, it really has to fit an entire commercial between two commercial breaks. So it's this gigantic, lumbering thing. And the format of being under control was, we called it channel switching. You would write a sketch, but the second the sketch got boring, you would, it was like someone turned a channel and you went to a different sketch, and then you'd come back to that sketch later, you'd come back, and you'd go to a little commercial parodies, and you'd go back. And so it was this very kinetic kind of thing. And so if you, if you had a sketch that was only, say, a minute and a half, but there were three extra good jokes, you could actually film the minute and a half sketch and then just do the two or three extra jokes as, uh, as, as, as little bits. And later, so you'd lace that through the entire show as if you, as if you were just a guy on a couch clicking the channels and you went past it again. Sounds very robot chicken. Yes, yeah, sure. Yeah, that's very much of that mindset. You know, it was part of the, you know, I think it's one of the reasons I really enjoyed writing Man on the Moon was that in the 1970s, as I thought people were going to forget, comedy was considered a little revolutionary. There was, uh, you know, right now there's just so much comedy everywhere, comedy news, comedy, every, everything is, everything, there's an industry. But back then, comedy was Johnny Carson and Bob Hope and all this stuff. And then all of a sudden came these young guys who sort of turned it on its head. And, and there was, you know, a mixture of that gorilla theater. And so it really felt... There was a reason why SNL was such a sensation when it happened. There was a reason why Pryor and Steve Martin as stand-ups were such revolutionary figures because they, you know, they, they, they were, they, so comedy felt like a weird ground zero kind of thing where, like, that's why Andy Kaufman met a lot because it was like, you know, it really was performance stuff. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't, uh, just joke, joke, joke. What made you decide to move out to Hollywood and start writing there? Isn't that what a young man from Indiana was supposed to do? That was really it. I, you know, my, no one in my family went to college, so I actually, um, I actually didn't go to college at first. 
I, uh, I got a job being a film critic for uh, the NBC affiliate back in Indiana. And so I took a year off and just sort of like did the weekly, you know, Saturday and Sunday late night news, you know, on air film critic, wanting to be a little bit of a. Yeah, growing up in Indi- South Indiana, it was very close to Chicago, and, uh, you know, the influence of, uh, uh, Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel was gigantic. I mean, they were, they were just so huge in that area that, you know, you'd go to a, a movie marquee and it would have the name of the film, but rather than the name of the actors on the marquee, it would say, you know, the name of the film in Siskel, three and a half stars. Uh, and that was also the year of Pauline Kale and, and things like that. So, so being a, a film critic, uh, I thought was quite interesting and I, I was, I'm a big lover of film. So I was a film critic for a bit and then I, I sort of just, just knew that I had to get out of Indiana and I would really just threw the, uh, uh, up to the fate. I, 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 I basically applied to USC film school and if I didn't get into USC film school, um, I was going to audition for Second City in Chicago. And I got into USC film school, so I came out here. And Scott Alexander was my, Scott Alexander was my uh, freshman roommate. We wound up writing a script while we were in uh, uh, in college, and it sold for a lot of money, and all of a sudden we had an office at 20th Century Fox, and that movie never got made, but we basically uh, became a, a writing partnership that's lasted now close to 30 years. I'm always curious about writing partnerships, how that works. How do you guys kind of break down stuff? Um, we do it uh, in the room and together. It's not like uh, it's a true partnership. It's not, um, you know, you were the first act, I'll write the second act, and we'll meet back up in June. But the way I describe it best is just say that someone would go watch an old episode of the Dick Van Dyke show. You know, uh, one person is at the uh, computer typewriter, one person faces around the room, and, you know, it's, it's definitely the old fashioned way of, of comedy writing, where you, you know, comedy writers tend to write in groups, which is what I didn't get under control, because if you throw out a line and people laugh in the room, there's kind of no denying it. So you, you know that it's working. Where, um, you know, Scott and I just have a very painstaking process where uh, he sits behind a computer, he's, he's a, uh, a master of, of the script page as architecture very influenced by a, a, a teacher named Jim Boyle, who was quite influential on Scott in terms of, like, having a script page. You know, every character turn means something, as opposed to just, you know, we're filling time by by writing and writing and writing. So, so yeah, how many writing did you both people sit in the room and, and, and you go back and forth? And, um, and you know, uh, I think it's helped us a great deal in that, in that I think our scripts have a bit of off-center, weird originality to them. And part of that is... Scott will throw out a line and, and I want to say I like it and I'll throw out a line and he won't like it and then we're both down at each other and we throw out a couple more lines and none of those lines are good. And so by the time we actually agree on a line, it's the 10th or 15th line that we've, you know, we've argued about. And so that becomes kind of like, if you're, if you're drawn that deep, it's kind of a, it's kind of going to be, it's probably either really not going to work or it's going to be kind of original and hopefully that we lean towards the original part. And, um, um, that's our process. Now, I know you didn't necessarily have the best experience in the world with Problem Child, but can you tell me, what was the original script supposed to be like with that? Problem Child initially was a reaction to, um, there was a genre at the time. Genres have stages, classic stages, postmodern stages, all that kind of stuff. And at the time, there was this genre of yuppies with a baby. Uh, yuppies who get, like, you know, um, who get taught, uh, you know, oh, don't... Don't uh, don't worry about your job so much. You actually should spend your time with your children. It was like baby boom and and three men and a baby or three men and a cradle, whatever it was called. She's having a baby. There are a lot of these films, 
and we sort of had the idea to, you know, put it on its head. It's, I mean, you can sort of see this happening right now with superhero genre where, uh, you know, take a long time for superhero genre to get to the postmodern phase, but with Deadpool, they're trying to say, all right, you guys, you know the tropes. We're going we're gonna to turn them on its ear. So we're going to make uh, uh, a baby coming into these people's lives into, uh, you know, a freaking nightmare. That's how that that project got made. You know, looking at the you know the the you know what the studio wanted was uh, another another nice <laughs> a nice kid friendly movie, and that you know financially they were absolutely correct in that it's hard to do a parody of a family film because a fam- uh, as a general the poster is always going to feel somewhat like a family film. So you know whatever our first test screening at the problem shop, we had this like you know mothers coming over and you know just just screaming and yelling. Uh, you know, how inappropriate it was. So, uh, you know, we, uh, and that's what, I think, but that's also what makes those, those two problem child movies stand out. I mean, they use them, uh, it's one of those things where, you know, we had, uh, misgivings about a lot of it, but, uh, 27 years later, or whatever it is now, um, people who were nine and 10 years old when they, when that movie came out are now, are now studio executives, are now running, you know, the cinema family or, or, you know, places like that. And we've come to terms with it where, where people come up to us and say like, oh, my, I was a, you know, I was a messed up little kid. And that like, that, I, you know, it was, it's sort of, um, a punk aesthetic for little kids. And, and that were, that, that I'm sort of proud of. It's amazing. I didn't realize what a phenomenon it was. I knew of the sequel, but I didn't know about Problem Child 3 or the TV show. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm a big fan of Problem Job too. I think I think Brian Levan actually did a really good job of directing that movie. And um, uh, but the uh, um, the the longer it went on, the less the you know the less uh, uh, it's uh, you know and whatever there was a, there was a, a television remake last year. Someone uh, NBC tried to revive it as a, as a sitcom. We had absolutely no idea to do with that. I never I never saw it. But uh, yeah, and uh, Matthew Lillard was the uh, John Ritter part. I can see him doing that. Yeah. When you were growing up and seeing all these movies at the drive-in or Indiana's drive house, uh, grindhouse, those kind of yeah. things, what were some of your favorites? Well, that's one of the reasons I do that website, Trailers from Hell, because that you know, I really got to do is pop over there, trailersfromhell.com. Uh, it's a website run by Joe Dante, and it's filmmakers like myself and Edgar Wright, Guillermo del Toro, John Landis, Josh Olson, this sort of interesting filmmakers who sort of grab on to films that sort of are a little off the beaten track and, and mean something to them. Um, funny, I was talking to Tarantino or during the release of April 8th, and we both were sharing the, the sort of early 70s experience of going to double bills of movies that have nothing to do with each other. Like, usually there's some kind of weird, you know, theme to double bills. Nowadays, they don't even have double bills. But you would go, you know, I, I saw... Contra Caravo's Burn with Marlon Brando probably on the same night as saw Last House on the Left or something like that, you know, or The Sparrow Cuckoo, you know, and, 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 and uh, so, you know, I both have a passion for a movie called Joe. I think, you know, he saw Joe on a double bill with, um, with Where's Papa? Well, for, you know, and that, that thing said it all there, is that, you know, well, Quentin and I at age nine or eight or nine, ten, eleven, twelve, whatever we were at the time, were, you know, being somehow taken to see a double bill of Joe and where's Papa? That's like you know, that's amazing. I think, it's, it, I think that's why we came, we turned out the way we did. Which is I, I shout, I'm making a joke there, but I'm actually being uh, serious too. At the same time, I'm. I think a lot of it is. Uh, uh, I'm a big fan of showing uh, children sort of age inappropriate material. It sounds crazy to say this, but um, when I was a kid, there were only three networks. 
So you had to watch whatever was on. And that was an uh, episode of Manic or an episode of, of whatever, or some movie that, you know, uh, was on TV. And you'd watch it, and sure, it wasn't aimed directly at you. It was kind of boring. It was kind of like, what's, you know, it wasn't, and, but you had to sit there and be patient, and then occasionally you were rewarded with a, what the hell was that? Wow. Whoa, my God. And then you, so you learned that, that, you know, right now with the multitude of channels, People just put their kids in front of Nickelodeon or Disney. There's nothing wrong with those networks, but uh, but that that feet entire intake, they're never asked to stretch that muscle. So it becomes like a, 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 you know they're never asked to like uh, all right, chill for a second. This is gonna you know you have to just just you have to you know you have to figure something out. And I thought that was very important to me growing up was was learning that lesson, like the movie that. Uh, really influenced me as a, as a young person. Uh, the first film I ever saw that, uh, that I sort of, I always knew there was a director and a writer and that kind of stuff, but when I saw the film The Conversation, that's Coppola movie, it was a movie that I really, really, to me, said, wait a second, there is a, there is someone telling the story. There is somebody who, you know, this is, this is being, you know, this is not just someone just, oh, here's a tale. It's like, there's, no, there's a director. There's a sound person. There is some, there, there are people who has an intelligent mind orchestrating this. And that was a huge, uh, you know, that was a huge uh, impact on me. Now, over the years, you've kind of become known as writing films about real people. Not necessarily, I wouldn't necessarily call them biopics, but there are definitely based on some real folks. Yeah, right. Ed Wood being one of the first one of those. How have you kind of taken that challenge on? Well, I think we, we sort of, uh, you know, as we became successful writers, it was, at, you know, the 70s were long over. So it was a much harder time to... Um, get interesting off-the-wall projects made through the studio system. And I think what we discovered was the true story, I wouldn't call it a Trojan horse, but, but close to it, in the sense that they were still willing to take a chance on on, on life is stranger than fiction kind of stories, and that those still resonated with audiences a bit, and also with awards, you know, actor, actors want to play these things. I mean, I'm saying maybe it's much more calculated than it was. I mean, uh, Ed Wood came first. Ed Wood was just a reaction to us being labeled the problem child guys and us, you know, us like, you know, only being able to get jobs that were movies about little kids who farted. And we were like, that's not the kind of writers we are. Maybe we should go write up that sort of indie movie that, that means something to us that we, you know, maybe we started our career in the wrong way. And so, uh, you know, we, we had always talked about doing a movie about Ed Wood, but at this point we sort of thought we had nothing to lose, and we also looked at Ed Wood in a different way, because we, you know, Pumshaw was savaged by the critics, and people, you know, uh, people, and so we just sort of knew that he, he wasn't, it's not that easy to make a good movie. Instead of making fun of Ed for making bad movies, we sort of said, well, if you look at him sympathetically. And so we wrote this, we wrote this script on spec that was really, you know, about that celebrated his passion. We celebrated, he, by looking at, examining the worst, you were able to really look at what it takes to make a film and, and go through all the various process. And when that movie, you know, was embraced by, the script was embraced by Tim Burton and he, he, he directed it and it came out and Martin Landau won an Oscar and also won other Oscars and, and, uh, it wasn't a financial success. But it put us on the map, and I think in a very similar way to, you know, we recognize that as a problem child, people said, oh, you're, you're, you're the problem child guys. You were only right this. 
we sort of stepped back and said, wait a second, what about the biographical film? This is a genre, like even you, you condescendingly said, I wouldn't call them biopics because, because by you think by saying, oh, they're biopics for some reason, that's terrible. Uh, when you think of biopic, you think of that three hour stuffy thing about the great man who does this and, and, you know, and then dies and uh, got an old age makeup telling the story. And, and we recognize it as a genre that just, uh, needed to have a, a bomb thrown in the room. And by, by uh, using Edward as a template, we sort of invented what we call the great, the anti-great man biopic. A biopic for someone who doesn't deserve biopic in the, in the traditional sense. But what we found was that these type of stories actually made for great cinema and that they were about nothing but conflict. By picking someone who was sort of more outside of society who has perhaps questionable motives or questionable goals, all of a sudden it's just, it's just, you, you start like thinking, hmm, wait a second, what, 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 how do I feel about this? Uh, I'm very proud of a movie we made a year ago called Big Eyes, also with Tim Burton, uh, also examining someone that, you know, an, uh, uh, an artist that, that people, uh, many people poo-poo crit- critically, but I do feel like actually looking at someone that is so put down by the critics, you're able to discuss art issues that, that a regular movie about Picasso would never discuss. I mean, there's so much art theory dialogue in, in Big Eyes, so much discussion of, uh, you know, just uh, the, the commerce angle of the art world. Uh, you would never get that if you were just making a regular straight, uh, you know, uh, uh, for life kind of biopic. Uh, same goes for Ed Wood. I mean, I've had so many filmmakers come to me and say that they think it's, you know, one of the best films about filmmaking because everyone realizes they're just one film away from being, from being Ed Wood. And that's also why we added that scene at the end. It's, I mean, we try to be very truthful in our biopics and, and not straight from things that didn't, didn't happen. We put our spin on it, of course. But, um, we had a scene at the end of Ed Wood where Ed meets Orson Welles, and Ed was obsessed with Wells, but we sort of thought, what would happen if the quote-unquote worst filmmaker of all time met the quote-unquote best filmmaker of all time? What would be their discussion? What would they, what would they talk about? And then we realized they were, they sort of were in the exact same boat, and I think that's it all. So, um, uh, so basically, when, 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 when after Ed Wood happened, we sort of started thinking, what else should we do? And we we knew we sort of had a brief window of time where we might be able to get another one of these things made. And Larry Flynn had been a whole section of the of the people versus Larry Flynn where Larry's like in in the courthouse wearing a diaper and throwing oranges at a judge and stuff like that. That all happened happened in L.A. when Scott and I were in college. So we were you know we used to when we were roommates get the L.A. Times and read the Metro section and just kind of, they, they, you know, just reading newspaper articles, read like a Marshmallows routine. So we were, we sort of looked at each other and said, what about, what about a Larry Flint movie? And, um, and we sort of got that made, you know, doing the same thing we did with Ed Wood, where Ed Wood, we managed to get a Tim Burton, the kind of the one person to get a movie like that made with, uh, with Larry Flint. We got to Oliver Stone, who at that time was sort of making, uh, controversial films and, um, you know, we managed to get that made through Columbia and we started an association with a, with a director out of Radio Alfonso from Milos Forman. But we basically, by, by the end of the great man thing, it's good things like, you know, a pornographer who fights for first amendment rights. You know, is he sincere or is he not sincere? It doesn't matter. You know, with Andy Kaufman, and it was, you know, a comedian who who isn't interested in being funny. You know, we produced a film called Autofocus, which was, you know, sort of about a, a television star who who's actually more interested in um 
and having sex with uh, with people who recognize him on the street than, than he is in, 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 in choosing any kind of quality projects. So we, we had this, we, you know, we basically made a bunch of films right in a row that, uh, that sort of, uh, you know, examined this kind of uh, alternate history of the United States. And, I, and, it, and, it, and it caught on a big way. I feel like just every year now you have um, three or four of these movies, particularly during the Oscar season where, you know, they're, they're sort of... Uh, and we certainly went the first. I mean, there are movies before. I, uh, I uh, you know, I props to an actor named Gary Oldman who made, who really did make two of these movies, two of our kind of movies beforehand, uh, Sid and Nancy and, and Prick Up Your Ears, uh, which definitely fit into our wheelhouse and were quite influential when we, uh, when we, when we first set it up. Yeah, it must be interesting now going back. You, you talked about uh, the time when Larry Flint was throwing oranges in the courtroom and everything, right around the time of the whole OJ thing going on, too, right? Uh, no, that's about 10 years apart. Uh, because the, the, the time the OJ thing was going on was actually when we were making The People vs. Larry Flint. Milos Foreman was, as with everyone, was completely obsessed with the trial. We actually cast one of our actors off of court TV. Uh, we got a phone call from Milos one night. Um, he was watching uh, Court TV and an uh, analysis guy who's um, like a law professor at NYU was, uh, you know, a senior OJ analysis or Court TV or whatever. And, you know, it's like, he looks just like Jerry Falwell's lawyer. So we wound up as a guy named Bert Newborn and we wound up casting him as, uh, as Jerry Falwell's lawyer. And, and it was interesting, like, in the screenplay, when you go to all these legal things, you kind of shorten it all just for the sake of, you know, movie time. During the OJ trial, Milos was so influenced by, the, by everything that was happening in the courtroom and felt that people were now so used to seeing what actually went on in the courtroom, he had to expand all that stuff. So it's all, you know, hand the paper to the bailiff, hand the paper, you know, and so there was a lot of just, really, you want to take this? <laughs> but he felt, you know, people were so, so used now to watching court on television that they, he wanted those, some of those courtroom scenes expanded. What was it like working with Foreman? Uh, he's the best. Big personality, but a very getting man and a very person who's very interested in bringing out the best in other people. He looks at a film as almost like a sponge, where you can kind of like you know you cast you cast people who are who are so right for the part or who basically are the part. So as he says, even their mistakes are correct. You know, he likes to give people freedom to you know you know outside input into the thing. He's a guy who never you know. He wants to hear your opinion and wants to be, you know, filmmaking is a process. That doesn't mean he doesn't have a strong hand. I mean, this movie certainly has a mealish forming element to all of his films, uh, but there's the humanity, too. And I think, um, you know, it was, a, it was an honor to make two films. And when it comes to Ed Wood, I read the script, and it was definitely a lot longer than what ended up on screen. Were there any segments that you missed necessarily when you saw it for the first time? Oh, not at all. I mean, Edward is, 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 is the opposite where, um, um, you know, Tim famously wrote a, a directed our first draft for that movie. I and mean, it's almost word for word. You know, the only things that happened were lifts. You know, there were two things happened. Lifts. And, uh, and when Bill Murray took on the role of Bunny Breckenridge, you know, uh, Bunny was way throughout the piece a little bit more. And so he didn't just have Bill Murray show up on the set and be an extra. But no, I don't, there, I don't miss anything. And, uh, you know, I mean, you have to, you know, there are certain stages of filmmaking. There's writing a script, there's, there's making the film, and then there's editing. And editing, you have to be very conscious of 
the butts in the seats in the end? Is this, is this going on too long? Is this, you know, so in the writing stage, you want to make things as clear as possible. And sometimes in the editing stage, you realize, you know what? You don't need to explain who this person is. They can just be there. And so I'm not even talking to everybody at what, but um, it was very rare that Scott and I, you know, we might complain about you want to cut the scene or not film the scene. We might challenge the director in that sense or a producer in that sense. However, once it's in the editing room, I think we're always up open to the idea of like, oh, do you, do, do you need this scene? I would much always rather have the scene in my back pocket in the editing room. So when you have that horrible test screen in Pasadena and people say, I don't understand this. Or you have that, 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 you know, long, you know, and that you can add that scene back in. Or, you know, that certain, you know, every, every scene in a script has a certain reason to exist. And, um, um, you know, sometimes they can go, sometimes they can't. And, and, and editing is a, is a, is a, is a place where you sort of reshape things. Now, when it came to Ed Wood, this was your first kind of picture where you're working with a real subject, correct? Uh, sure. I mean, I'll say that, no, I'll say no, no, the weird thing is that the, um, um, both Problem Child and, um, um, and, and our first script, Homewreckers, which didn't get made, had their genesis out of, out of, uh, out of newspaper stories that we, that we actually saw. They were completely ridiculous, but, um, but, and we totally didn't use the actual story, but, uh, but yes. So even, even our, our, our broad comedies, uh, had, a had, had an element of, um, torn from the headlines. But yes, uh, we were, we were, Edward is the first, the first bio picture. I was just curious how beholden you felt necessarily at that point in your career to be 100% accurate to history, or was it, I mean, for me, it feels like the story comes first and the accuracy or whatever, maybe it's there, maybe it's not necessarily there, but you want to kind of have the flavor of it. There's nothing wrong with what you just said. Uh, I think we tend to be a little bit more, um, you want to, you are making drama out of recent history. So you want you got to make sure the story is there. It can't just be in the script because it happened. You know, the difference, the difference between real life and, and movies is that movies have to make sense. Real life does not have to make sense. Uh, you know, uh, in the middle of a phone conversation, a semi-truck can just smash into me and, um, and, uh, and, and I'm dead. That wouldn't work on a film because it wasn't set up. You need to cut to the bar first, like where the, where the truck driver is getting a beer and, <laughs> and, and whatever, you know. Uh, so what happens in these biopics, and it's not that what it's just, it's, it's all the, it's all the, all, every movie, is that you're turning someone's life into two hours. When you turn someone's life into two hours, you can't show everything. So you have to figure out what you have to show, and you have to figure out what part of his life interests you or what part of your life is makes the story. So you, uh, you know, you're admitting things. You're saying, you know what? I know he moved to Iowa for five years, but, you know, I don't really care about that Iowa section. Yes, he had that, you know, had that, uh, she, she was married to that guy for, for, for that brief period, but I believe the first husband out. Just because we don't have time for it. You know, you, you know, I was, you know, regular movies don't act that way. You know, you, you know, you don't, you know, uh, Terry McGuire doesn't just go off and, uh, <laughs> And grab another job and, uh, and, 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 and go on vacation in the middle of the movie. You know, so you have to figure out what it is. You know, I'll talk about the movies, the, the, the TV show we're at right now, the people versus OJ Simpson, where we had 10 hours, which is, which sounds like a lot, but we're doing, you know, nine months of a trial and, you know, and, uh, there's so much information and so many characters and so many things. We're trying to be extremely accurate in that show. But sometimes that means, all right, 
these, this stuff happened in the court, it happened over a week, but we're making a three-minute scene. So we got Daddy Check's DNA evidence presentation. That goes on for, that goes on forever. But we have to make it a three-minute scene where you understand what his point is, plus you understand the drama between the characters in the scene. So that's, that's where it becomes an art. Uh, and you never want to do something that where the character is, um, you know, you don't want to do something where you're making a real person do something that they wouldn't have done in real life. But you, so you, but in order to make transitions and things like that, you have to. There is some in, uh, invention going on, but that's there's an invention going on any time you watch any media whatsoever. People always say, like, "Well, your movie's not a documentary," and I always say, "You know, a documentary's not a documentary." People think, you know, if a guy says, "I didn't," you know, a documentary says, "I didn't kill her." And you cut to a meadow and a uh, deer running around, whatever. That's different than if he says, I didn't kill her. And you, and then you know, all of a sudden you put a little piece of music underneath that. And then, you know, one says he did kill her, one says he didn't kill her, you know. So it's all a matter of, uh, of manipulation and, and, and what you want to say. And I think that Scott and I would never make a movie or a TV show about something that we don't have something to say about or about a figure that, so we always you know that's why you know what Oliver Stone got criticized a lot for always having an agenda and, and I always would defend Oliver by saying thank God he had an agenda like I want to see if I want to see a filmmaker have an agenda that I think it makes quality work actually so so anyway that that that's how we feel about the uh, it's very important to be to stick to the facts stick to the truth but you also have to make drama out of it too right I just know Ed Wood really appeals to a lot of very particular film fan, so I was curious as far as how much backlash you might have gotten when it came to like, oh, that wasn't accurate, oh, that wasn't accurate, those kind of things. Well, in the case of all of our projects, we find that the it's the people that you think will most love a project that actually go after you the most. Like, um, people who are the huge fans who know everything, and particularly in the, the type of people we've chosen to write over the years tend to be very obscure tend to be, uh, you know, so the people who were fans of them, it meant something to them. There was a certain, the fact that you knew more about Andy Kaufman than anyone else in your town, that was your badge of honor. And what happens is, then you go to, the movie comes out and you go to school the next day, and that kid, that kid you don't like now, now thinks he knows anything about Andy Kaufman, and he thinks it's, you know, uh, uh, the Carnegie Hall show happened when, you know, what when, when happened in the movie and all of a sudden, you start, we call them the, um, uh, they're, they're, they're just, they're, so it drives you crazy, you know, it drives that, that, that person crazy that that's no longer their thing and, and every single manipulation becomes some badge of honor that to point out that, you know, wait a second, this, this is a lie, this is a lie, this is a lie. It's not necessarily a lie, it's just, you know, we're, we're turning it into, uh, we're, we're turning someone's true life story into, uh, uh, you know, uh, a film. The thing was, uh, you know, Ed Wood was one, uh, one of those things where, where there wasn't a whole lot of information about these people at the time. It was pre-internet. And we really had, uh, just interviews in, um, Cult Movies Magazine and Rudy Gray's, uh, excellent book, uh, uh, yeah, and my Nightmare of Ecstasy to go on, which is just interviews with, uh, people surviving, uh, 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 you know, people in Edward's, uh, entourage. And so, you know, the thing about Edward is that, that we didn't know, um, we didn't know how people met each other. That, a lot of that is invented. But I often say that, you know, if we really wanted to mess with the truth, we would have made, Leonard Linda, the third act. If you if you look at it from a screenwriting point of view, it's like, all right, he he wants to make movies, you know, and he then he makes these silly monster movies, and the third act, you realize, you know what? 
no, I've got to tell the truth. I'm going to put my own story on screen. But, you know, and then that becomes a third act of Ed's in his own movie about himself, and he's, he's a personal filmmaker, and it's, it's triumphant in that way. We thought we didn't have the, um, the right to, to move the films around like that. We did feel that way about Man of the Moon, where we did move, uh, uh, you know, Carnegie Hall to the third act, but we also had Amy Kaufman start the film saying that, the movies are lies. It's uh, you know they manipulate things. They 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 change things around for you know dramatical purposes. And uh, we thought it was Kaufman esque to use Andy's Andy's life the way Andy would, where it just you know he would he, that 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 Andy's life was all about questioning what actually happened, what didn't happen. So we had the uh, we had a little more freedom in that movie. How much research do you guys have to do before you start working on one of these things? What did you do when you came to Andy Kaufman to find out so much about him? Too much research. The thing about all these people is none of them has, I mean, there was nightmare backstory for, for Ed Wood, but the other, the other people had books about them. It really became, we had to act like journalists and uh, track people down or go to old, uh, you know, research material, go to libraries and microfiche and all that kind of stuff. That's quite different than what we did for the people for Zodiac Simpson, which was uh, based on Jeffrey Tubin's excellent book. But uh, we also wound up reading every single book written by every single character. So there's, you know, Marsha wrote a book, Chris wrote a book, Johnny wrote two books, uh, Shapiro wrote a book. There's all the think piece books, like Vincent Bugalosi and, and jurors wrote books, and there's all the court transcripts. And so it's an endless, endless, endless wormhole of, uh, of information, and you got to keep that all straighten your head, and uh, it uh, can be quite daunting. We're doing the Patty Fisher Hurst kidnapping right now, and there's a lot of info on that on that particular thing that's, that's making my brain bleed. It's also based on uh, Jeffrey Tubin is currently writing a book, and he's sending us some chapters as he as he finishes them, and we're also doing our own research on it. And, um, uh, yeah, it's also with our producing partners, uh, uh, Nina Jacobson and Brad Simpson, who we did the O.J. Simpson program with, and... Um, uh, you know, they've got a lot of similarities uh, in that uh, sort of uh, uh, a crime that becomes a cultural phenomenon. And Pat Patricia Hurst was on the cover of Newsweek, I think, seven times in one year. So, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating story. It's gonna, I think it's going to be a very interesting film, but we've got to handle on it. Is it true that you came up with the three shells for Demolition Man? Ha, <laughs> That's so funny. Um... Uh, I'm not going to take complete credit for it. Uh, Daniel Waters, who I mentioned earlier, uh, from our TV show, Beyond Our Show, he's my best friend. We went to high school together. Uh, we were roommates. Um, he went after his roommate with me, his roommate with Scott, and I mean, whatever. He was my best man at my wedding. He's the godfather of my children. Uh, so, whatever. There's, uh, there are Dan Waters' lines in my scripts, and there are my lines in Dan's scripts, and, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, it was my, I'm going to suggest a case of Rossera at the end of Heather's, but there's, you know, the three seashells was that was talking to me while I was going to the bathroom one day. <laughs> and he was asking, you know, and it literally just, uh, you know, I was at the toilet, had like sort of potpourri next to the toilet, and I think there was some, some seashells, and I was like, I was like, and, and, and the conversation rose from that, so I won't, I, you know, then uh, then I uh, go back and forth in terms of, like, who actually came up with the lines, but it's, uh, it, you know, I'll give Dan the credit for that, but uh, but it, it came out of uh, uh, the conversation we had while uh, I was taking it down. Well, thank you so much, Mr. Karaszewski. This was great talking with you. Okay, great. No problem. It was fun. You're a smart guy.
Now, you grew up in the Soviet Union in the 70s. When did you emigrate? I moved to United Kingdom uh, about 10 years ago. I was traveling quite a lot uh, in previous times. So I, I lived for a couple of years in Germany. Uh, but actually, uh, it is just uh, the recent decade that I'm in, in England. So you were the, a Soviet citizen for a long darn time. Absolutely. What was it like growing up over there? It was uh, probably a kind of secure feeling of pretty much knowing what's, uh, what's uh, what is where and what is happening next. And, uh, you know, if, if you are a child, you, you take uh, a lot of things uh, just um, just normal. And uh, when, when it started to change, then, um, yeah, that, it was a really radical change. The theremin is such an unusual instrument. I mean, just that there's no real physical interaction with the instrument. When you're playing it, what are you seeing in your mind's eye? Are you kind of picturing something to interact with? If you play the theremin, you have to be very well concentrated on the sound because there's no other uh, no other orientation how to find the sound. You have to concentrate. You have to know very well which sound you want to play. And then you uh, coordinate, um, you find this coordination between your your movement and your inner ear. That means I'm not really imagining any pictures, but I'm probably it is a little bit um, similar to meditation or image of yourself before singing. So before singing, you have to imagine the melody you're going to sing. For folks who don't know how the theremin works, can you kind of explain as far as like what your hands are doing? Because it's very, it's fascinating to watch someone play the theremin. Yes. Well, this is absolutely unique uh, technique. Um, I mean, technique of playing. I stand in front of um, a box with two antenna, and I move my hands near those antenna, and um, the the. Um, well, the the thing is, the antenna are connected to uh, sound generators, and uh, uh, it creates the open electromagnetic field around the antenna, which I interact with. And by moving my moving my hands uh, near the antenna, I change the capacity of the field, and I influence the tuning of the oscillators. So everything is happening. Uh, I'm controlling the melody this way um, uh, by my ear because I know if I go closer to the antenna, to the right antenna, vertical antenna, with my yeah, with my body actually, with my hand, um, I increase the frequency. I change the pitch. It's get, it gets higher. If I go away from the antenna, it gets lower. With my other hand, with my left hand uh, over a loop antenna, I change the volume by moving the hand away from the antenna. I increase the volume and back to the antenna, I, uh, I made, make it silent, actually. So that's how, um, how the playing uh, happens on the theremin. You were kind of in a unique position being able to be taught by the instrument's inventor, by Leon Theremin himself. What was he like as a teacher? 
Well, Letterman was absolutely unique person, and I think I was taught by his personality, the way how he was communicating with uh, with the world, with with people, not less than um, uh, in the way how he to- how he uh, presented his theremin to me. Uh, I mean. For, for for the whole life, I, I keep this image of him uh, as um, an old man with a very young soul and a very vital and very young-looking old man. I, I think that was most important for me at, at that point. Obviously, he played and he... Uh, he told me with his example, with his just just his own own example, and then he had so much tolerance with uh, just just to, to hear for uh, my beginners exercises how how I play the, uh, the theremin. You know, if you start, the sounds are not very nice, <laughs> and someone has to be really uh, has has to have a lot of tolerance to um, yeah to teach the theremin, <laughs> and that's what he had. And I, I think, uh, and I'm sure he was really enjoying those moments. It was more more or less uh, like music, making music together, because uh, I was. He was correcting my intonation by normally by whistling because he always had this uh, um, slight slight uh, way of uh, humor that uh, he put in in everything he did and everything he said. Uh, so uh, he corrected corrected normally not by voice but by whistling, for example. That was him as a teacher. When you first started to play recitals, uh, was there any sort of resistance at the time to an electronic instrument being kind of brought into the theater? The uh, 1970s in Russia weren't uh, particularly good years for electronic music in general. Uh, And the theremin at that time was uh, pretty much not understood it was presented by this uh, old inventor, uh, left-hand man, and for inventors in Soviet Russia, it was uh, pretty, uh, quite difficult uh, to to develop their their inventions. And for an old person, it was uh, even more difficult. So I think uh, uh, most of people didn't really understand what you can do with, uh, with such invention. For me, at that time already, uh, was probably the main... I kept this idea, and maybe I can keep in, uh, this idea still, uh, that just, just to, to show it to more people and to, uh, to explain them how, how interesting it is, how, um, how different music you can do with this, and uh, yeah, how wonderful is this invention. When you were doing these concerts, um, what were some of the the songs that you were playing? Were they were uh, classical pieces, or were there more things of your own invention? Yes, at the beginning it was uh, it were classical pieces. Normally, uh, was like Ave Maria by Schubert, and uh, this one by Saint-Saëns. I started to play in the concerts. Uh, I started to play my my compositions. Uh, a little bit later, uh, so I used the theremin in my earlier compositions as well. Since I since I learned the theremin, I wanted to uh, to add it to my compositions. Actually, 
Can you tell me what it was like when you met Brian Eno and started to collaborate with him? Well, the collaboration with Brian Eno was uh, through uh, composer um, uh, Mikhail Malin, Michael Malin, and that was him who actually had this uh, the, the whole communication um, with Brian Eno. And uh, Misha Malin uh, invited me to uh, to do recordings for Brian Eno, and we did about seven pieces, I think, or even more, uh, and sent it to Brian. Uh, and then Brian uh, came to Moscow, and uh, I met him, and uh, uh, we arranged uh, the meeting of Brian with uh, Leon Theremin. Um, it was a very touching meeting, by the way. When did you meet up with Howard Shore? Because you and he have worked together a lot over the years. Well, uh, it was uh, when Howard Shore uh, composed his music for Ed Wood movie, and uh, they invited me to uh, record the music in uh, in London. The recording was uh, were done in London. At that time, I was uh, working for uh, for a theater in in Hamburg, in Germany, and um, uh, being a Russian citizen, it was not complete, not very simple to to travel straight away to different country and uh, to work uh, um, to do some work uh, so it, it was quite an adventure at that time uh, to get a visa, work permit whatever, to to arrive on time for the recording um, I think uh, this um, this work was uh, was very, had this uh, floor of uh, this adventure a lot but uh, the meeting was uh, absolutely nice, and I was happy to to work with Howard Shore uh, later for some uh, other projects as well. Can you tell me a little bit about the Black Rider and Alice? I came to Hamburg um, uh, to play in musical by uh, Tom Waits uh, and Bob Wilson, uh, Alice in Wonderland. <clears throat> it was 1992, and the idea of Tom Waits was to create the little... Wonderland in the orchestra. Uh, he collected all uh, sort of uh, very exotic instruments, and uh, the theremin uh, was a big part of it, of course. And um, the theremin was also uh, some kind of between the orchestra. And uh, the stage, uh, so I was a little bit uh, higher than the orchestra, and um, the sermon played both parts, you know, the the musical uh, music effect and theatrical effect, actually. And working with Tom Waits was real fun. I have to say, at that time, I didn't speak any word of English, and our communication was... uh, uh, really musical, musical communication. He uh, he would give us uh, some sketches and everything else. He was explained with his emotion, with his his movements or any kind of gestures. Uh, guests he would uh, he would add into explain how he wants um, us to play, and uh, musicians had to had to find out how how they will do this working. You know, your work on Alice is just absolutely gorgeous. I love the the use of the theremin in that um, production. I'm glad. Thank you. Yeah, I was curious what he would be like to work with because he just he seems to have such a public persona, and I wasn't sure if that was his persona at all times or not. 
I, I mean, it is a very creative person. He, uh, the, the whole communication was um, to create the musical, you know, uh, so work on the creation. <laughs> so you knew no English at that particular time? No, I didn't. That's crazy. And now you're, you are super fluent in it, it sounds like. Thank you. When it comes to your own work, uh, what are some of your favorite things that you've done over the years? Well, there are many um, of different kinds. Um, and one of them is uh, the ballet by Lera Auerbach, uh, The Little Mermaid. Uh, this ballet was uh, premiered in, um, in Copenhagen in 2005 for um, University of uh, Hans Christian Andersen. And uh, later it came um, and was played for almost 10 years uh, in uh, on the scene of Hamburger Opera. And actually it was played in many other countries like um, China and uh, Japan and Russia and United States. So it was um, uh, it was on tour. And this is absolutely beautiful ballet and this is wonderful music, very emotional, uh, sort of uh, post-romantic, uh, but obviously it is contemporary music. And the ceremony has a role of um, the voice of the Little Mermaid in this ballet. Um, so it is something very sensitive, very lyrical, and at the same time not human voice. This is something that I really like. I really like this this music, and every time I played uh, this ballet um, in the orchestra, uh, on particular moments, uh, uh, the tears came in, into my eyes. So it's it's a very emotional moments. Well, it's brilliant to have the theremin as the voice of the Little Mermaid because so much of that is all about when she has a voice and when she doesn't. That's exactly that's yes, gorgeous. Oh, that's great. Mm. Now, can you tell me what was it like? I just want to go back a little bit to um, Ed Wood. Mm -hmm. And what was that experience like for you recording that? It was my first, very first experience um, uh, of recording music for a film. And uh, in general, I was quite young at that time. Uh, and um, uh, I, I still had to, uh, to learn a lot uh, even my English wasn't wasn't that developed at that time at all, and for me uh, it was mainly uh, the interest uh, that I'm playing with the orchestra, and uh, how is it uh, to to work with this uh, film measurement uh, when you when you play to the movie, you know, to the particular scene. That was quite new for me. So actually, everything was new. Now, what was Howard Shore like to collaborate with? Very, very lovely person in all ways, I would say. Very soft-spoken and very uh, uh, flexible in the way of... Um, on some point, he would say, oh, uh, let us do improvising, you know. Uh, so he was... Um, 
she was developing things uh, uh, since since the recording session as well, and uh, we actually uh, uh, kept communications, to, uh, kept in touch uh, later, and I uh, recorded music for his existence, uh, and uh, for one of his computer games, uh, musics as well, and uh, actually I did uh, the recording for the CD of uh, this Edward uh, music. Now, what are you working on these days? I'm working on several projects, and uh, one of them is a project of uh, music for uh, for films uh, with uh, chamber ensembles, um, seven seven uh, people ensemble, and uh, I, uh, there I play uh, music from Mars Attack and Charlie and Chocolate Fabric, uh, The Day the Earth Stood Still. Spellbound, uh, and I normally do uh, my own arrangements for each particular set um, for for those concerts. So there's a lot of work involved. Oh wow! With Spellbound and the Day the Earth Stood Still, I mean, those are <laughs> the theremin songs for me. That's right. Yeah, that this is classic. Yeah, that's something that's uh, made the theremin sound popular. Yeah, for many people. Yeah. Well, where can people go to find out more about you and about your music? There's a lot of information on my website and also my YouTube channel with all different uh, videos uh, on it uh, where you can see experimental stuff and uh, classical uh, pieces. Uh, and, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Ms. Kavina. I really appreciate this. Yeah, thank you very much. wanted to ask you about Ed Wood. Can you tell me about how you got the role and uh, what it was like? Well, that's actually a really cool story. You know me, I'll have 18 stories, so you got to stop me and sift through and tell me move on. <laughs> With me, you know, it's kind of my friend uh, to a college basketball coach goes to Mike Star Bumper. It's kind of like a pinball machine. All the things they tell you when uh, people come to speak or you go to, uh, you might go to speak somewhere uh you or me might go speak somewhere and advise uh, college students or people in the class or in any business. Like, you know, one leads to another. This I remember one of my first Broadway show guy told me, he was closing one night. My friend Lloyd Batista had been around a long time, and he said, you know, from one job you get three or lose three. Back when I did Mad Dog and Glory, and I'm, I'm one of the holdouts on the East Coast, and we did that in Chicago. I started to get some heat from it, but not, not what you would think. Some things I got from it, the funniest things, but out of nowhere, as they say, but connected somewhat. Um, I mean, I get called into a movie called Cabin Boy. <laughs> and it's not like I'm trying to impress anyone. You know, it's not like, hey, let me tell you just the way we're talking, you know, or I know I've been monopolizing the conversation, but uh, I, I don't know what it was. I was telling stories and... Adam said, geez, Tim Burton came to us. He loved Get a Life, you know, the Chris Elliott show. And he said, come up with a story. And they didn't know. And someone suggested, let's do a, a crazy version of Captain's Courageous or something. You know, but he said, Tim Burton said, can you come up with anything to Chris? So sure enough, I get to play the giant, the salesman with the pocket protector who's married to Annie Magnuson, who has eight arms and is, a, you know, the great performance artist. And 
So we're having fun on the set. We're just laughing. All these different things that happened. Or Walters and all these Letterman showed up on it, right? And Brian Doyle, Murray, and all these great characters. And we're just having a great time. I played it. They wanted me to play really, <laughs> really New York, this and that. You know, just have fun. Everything, nothing has to make sense, right? Well, one day, Adam says to me, Tim's doing a movie about Ed Wood, who made the worst with your plan nine from outer space. Also, you would be great as the producer, first producer. Now, I have to tell you, so many times you hear it after the fact, or someone says, I'm writing something, you're perfect for it, or we're trying to do something. I don't know, 95% maybe it doesn't happen. And that's not a, that's not a knock on people. There's a lot of well intentioned. Sometimes there's deals have to be made. Someone says, oh, I want you to play this part. And it, it happens to act as a lot of people run into each other or whatever. So sure enough, one day Tim Burton comes to the set and they introduced me. And I'll let, he was eating a plate of spaghetti that I couldn't get through. <laughs> it, was, it, was of, it was just like shovel. It was so funny. It was so nice. It was so pleasant and friendly. And it was lunch. And he's got this big thing of spaghetti talking. Uh huh. Uh-huh. And Adam goes, don't you think he would be great for Georgie Weiss, the producer? And he goes, yeah, you know. Now, again, there are times that people do things, they say things, and they, they, they're polite or whatever. So, oh, it's a great idea, and it just goes, floats away somewhere. Well, that's how I got it. I, he just went, yeah, that'd be great. You know, and the, yeah, there are people who uh, really do what they say and say what they do, whatever, you know. And I'm not saying that people that don't do it. You know, a lot of times there's well-intentioned people, but it was really funny. Next thing I know, I'm, you know, down the line with doing that work. And I just did all my reading. And the, the script was like, the original script was like 147 pages, something. Great writer. And I should know, um, Kuczynski, Kuczynski, because I always mix them up saying the name with the, uh, the actor from Chicago who's now doing a Broadway show up with, you know, uh, is it Ted or something? But uh, Krasinski, I think it, that's his name. And, and he was uh, relatively new at the time, I think. But I know he's done so many great screenplays. And there was stuff they just had to cut out. There were so many funny things that some we shot, a lot of them we shot. And there's other people that run it that just there wasn't time for all of it. You know, there's so many... Big things. It was such a. It was really a great script, and they. I guess they had to pare it down to time. So, you see things like very quick collages of like the buffalo herd <laughs> to the buffalo stampede. Well, that was in a scene, as I remember, that was in a scene we did in a studio, and he just so, shows me all the stuff he wants to do. I go, what the hell is this? What the hell is this shit? <laughs> and he's showing me Buffalo stampedes and all this stock footage. You know, they were able to communicate that in like a collage of all me watching the movie later on or something, or him showing the movie. I can't remember. But, you know, I finally said, shoot whatever baloney you want. You know, just make it seven and a half reels, I think was the line. And every day was just so much fun. I mean, great crew of guys, you know, like Max Cassell and all these guys, you know, who were the film crew. We had laughs uh, on set and off set, and everybody was so so nice. Sarah Jessica Parker and Johnny Depp was the best. I mean, at the time, I don't know what kind of image they were trying to portray of him, but <laughs> I, I, he was like super pro, nicest person, and as opposite from a diva or any, I don't know what. People were asking me questions, I remember, because it was right around, I think, after Dumb and Dumber, we were shooting it, when Dumb and Dumber came out. 
and I didn't get it connected with Dumb and Dumber at all, as I remember, but I, I just remember being interviewed or something by someone, and they wanted all these terrible stories about John Dillinson. I said, I'm not covering for him. I'm telling you, this is him. He's like one of the nicest people. One day, Tim Burton came over to us and said, uh, geez, we're moving along fast. Any chance we can do tomorrow's uh, scene in the afternoon? Johnny Gibson said, that's fine with me. How about you, Mike? Yeah. I mean, there's only one right answer to that question. And fortunately, I, <laughs> exactly. Fortunately, I do, if I have a fairly big partner, so I try to learn the whole, I don't know where I got that habit, maybe from the theater or the old school guys. I learned the whole film just in case. Because, you know, a lot of times you have cover sets if you're doing certain types of films where if it's raining, they say, oh, we got to go to this. You better be prepared to do this. So I just figure I learned the whole film. Very well prepared for hopefully uh, for what we're going to do that week or that night. But this was, uh, yeah, that was going to be tomorrow. So it was really funny. We just ran right through it. And about the only, one of the only directions Tim gave, he yells out, Mike Starr, Mike Starr. And he comes in and kind of waving his arms. He goes, ah, no, 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 you're good. You know what you're doing. Just do what you're doing. I went, Tim, tell him something. He goes, no, 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 you know what to do. Just do what you're doing. Definitely, <laughs> uh, he was right, thank God, you know. It worked out well. I know you do a lot of research when you're uh, playing these parts, especially when you're playing somebody historical. Yeah. What kind of stuff did you find out about the real Georgie Weiss? I, I saw that I looked nothing like him. It was a short film that a guy. I want to say that Tim suggested a book or someone suggested a book to me and gave it. I can't remember. And I just read things about him and then just tried to infuse my own personality, I guess, if I was him. So I'd be a liar to say like, oh, I read that he was outgoing and bubbly or whatever. I, you know, I can't, I can't remember if that just kind of came up together with the lines and and just for, you know, what I looked like and how I was. And I think a lot of it was in the script, but also I read about him, you know, about the, uh, I read about Ed Wood and then tried to find out about Georgie Weiss as much as I could. So I guess what came on the screen was a lot of it came from research, hopefully, you know, and of course it was right there on the page. So you didn't have too much, but I can't, I think that's a, that's a great question. It's, you know, it's over 20 years ago and I'm trying to remember where things came from. I'd like to take credit for doing hard work, but I don't know. <laughs> I remember, I think the pastrami sandwich might've been my idea. Maybe, I don't know, you know, growing up and watch so many of those uh, films with that Hollywood guy, get me this guy. Yeah. What? Yeah. You know, and actually grew up with people like him, not, not that we're in the movie business, but you know, kind of had that, that energy, you know, but I think the script was so good and it just spoke for itself. So it just kind of came out and, it's interesting how many actors love that movie, you know, and how many directors and, and people uh, like yourself uh, doing this, you know, who just love film and all the, all the involvement you've had in film. And it's really interesting how much people love that movie. The two movies that I find interesting that people love are uh, Ed Wood and Miller's Cross, and that I've been involved in. Sometimes Mad Dog and Glory, someone like Kevin Smith really Loved that movie, you know, loved the character and the movie and everything. The character I was involved in in the, and the film. And I mean, I, I would get a diverse group of people from the business coming up to me, whether it's at the screening or premiere or whatever. And, and it's funny how the ones that I, you know, when I was really acting, you know, that sometimes you get that response, you know, you, you know, but, oh, this is going to be difficult. This will be, I got to do this. I got to do that. Oh, I have to do a dialect. And, uh, speak a different language or whatever, and really walk differently. 
And then sometimes <laughs> it just kind of happened. You know what I mean? It was like in a similar way to Goodfellas. You know what I mean? Like that I was so comfortable that it just seemed to Goodfellas, I guess, from reading but talking to people on all sides of the story uh, that, that the guy was a, a an outgoing, up fun guy. But with Ed Wood, it was reading. I did get to meet Edward's, uh, Edward's uh, wife was at the, uh, at the premiere, and that was cool. And she started talking to me about Georgie White. She was very complimentary, but we were talking about how physically different I was, which is okay, you know? Did you get to work much with Martin Lando on that one? Just had lunch with him, you know, a couple of times. Uh, I really, and I was in the, um, there was a scene where it was hard to really, and I was not quite the background, um, well, it was in the foreground uh, when we're filming him and then he's having the conversation with uh, with Ed Wood with Johnny Depp I believe I was in that one where I kind of stand around watching it you know you cut to me like shaking my head or whatever and it's a matter of I think I, I think that was in the film but no interaction with him as I remember except that having great uh, conversations at lunch with him because he told me I don't know if he was I, I'm from Flushing, Queens, Flushing, Jamaica area. People are starting to know what Queens is. And it was an area of Forest Hills where the actual tennis began, the tennis, uh, famous tennis tournament. They called it the Forest Hills, but it's actually uh, by the old Chase Stadium, Flushing, by the old World's Fair from 64. There's an area of Forest Hills. And as I remember, Martin Landau said that his sister was from there. I can't, I mean, his sister lived there. I mean, his sister was from there. Sound like checking police again. Um, and I can't remember if he told me he lived there, but we were talking about Queens a lot. Just great stories, you know, and just anything. You tell me. It was just so nice. So, you know, the best thing people say about an actor a lot of times that not only was he excellent, but he was down to earth. And you could just, it was just being with this regular guy, you know. And he wound up. I was so glad to see him. I mean, he did so much. And of course, the Academy Award and everything. But he also, he also, uh, you know, you see entourage, you know, he reached into <laughs> to people he had been involved with. So I didn't know, I didn't actually get to talk to him. Bill Murray, I, I would see, and I had worked with already, and he just, he just loves to break my balls about things, you know, and uh, he got <laughs> massages, he got massages for the cast and crew, everyone on the set that day, I remember, he brought someone in and got massages for everybody, but he's really funny, you know, he's just... Whenever I see him, he just gives me shit about something, but he's really, he's so great. He was great in that. But remember the scene? And then Bill references it. Uh, he talks about Karloff, who's called, he can't smell my shit. He did that. That I saw filmed. And I can't remember if I just watched it, or I watched it one way or the other, or if I was like standing there in the background watching it. You know what I mean? Like they turn around. It, it's not quite background. It, it, there's a shot of uh, him talking to um, talking to Martin Landau, uh, Johnny talking to Martin Landau, uh, Edward and Bella Lugosi, and then they cut back to us watching it. I think I just remember watching that and almost losing it, laughing so hard. You know when he says that, and then Bill has a great line. Bill has that great line. Well, he couldn't smell his shit. Bill <laughs> does that in the car. I'm remembering the movie now. Jeez, what a dynamite movie. This is fun. Oh, yeah. I rewatched it again last week, and it just it holds up so well. Yeah, it does. Oh, that's great to hear. Johnny Depp also, I mean, of course, he still does it, but it was starting to realize the range he had, you know, 
I think, you know, because people know him what Gilbert Grape is. I'm not sure what period is it because he had done uh, Jump Street this year, but Johnny would take the most interesting roles, you know, and really take chances. If you think the way he acted, the way he spoke at it, and you just believe him, you know, you're sitting there, this is, oh, this is, you know, oh, I was in, I was in World War Two, you know. <laughs> I got your movie this great. And I'm just, that was hysterical. I just loved him as the eternal optimist. Yeah, and he was just very sincere. But geez, when he replaces uh, Sarah Jessica Park was the coolest. I got to see her again. I was doing the Broadway show, The Art Couple, with uh, Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick, and she came back, and we just kind of laughed about that, because I don't know if that was her first film or what, but again, she was another person that was nice then and still has a tremendous reputation for being a good person, you know, and a very classy person. It's such a great ensemble cast. I mean, other than just, you know, the main leads. I mean, everybody that's there behind the camera. Yeah. Oh, yeah, oh, God, yeah. yes. How about Dinocchio? <laughs> Vincent's great. I don't know, know if I even knew him at the time or love him, but boy. I love the set that you're on when it's your office. Oh. Just it looks so you know, crowded with garbage and just the, the cinder block lawns. Those perverted oaky love that shit. That's <laughs> right, girls. And I make movies like Girls and Chains. This and that. It's funny. I just watched, uh, you know, when the uh, excellent film Trumbo and John, John Goodman and Stephen Root had to play these guys, you know, when they went to, to do all the, when he had to write for all the cheesy companies. And I remember him saying, I make shit, you know. It was kind of you know, the line that uh, Georgie has. was to say, kid, you got me confused with... Uh, Oh, God, the famous director, and he goes, I make crap. So it was similar. You know, those, those guys were working out there. You know, it was very interesting. I got a kick out of seeing that. He got me confused with David O. Selznick or something like that. Yeah, I don't make What are you working on these days? Uh, well, my next project, you know, Michael Imperioli from The Sopranos, right? Oh, yeah. Played Chris. John McDonough. a few interesting people. Practically, uh, the uh, He directed this movie... Vincent Piazza. I played a Polish-American guy who was uh, in Gotti's crew or something, and Vincent Piazza was called The Wannabes. Well, the director, Imperial, all these guys are getting together and doing this film. You ready for this? It's about a cabaret called Cabaret Maxime, and I'm supposed to go to Portugal in about two weeks for a couple of weeks playing this cheesy Las Vegas promoter, and Michael uh, requested me. Jeez, I get to play these cheesy guys, huh? Lovable guys, but lovable. This guy's lovable. But Michael, it's a film about a, an old school like burlesque in, in current times, real classic burlesque, like seaside place that uh, that uh, military, all different people back in the day would go to that style of on on their leave, and, and the new world is taking over, whether new monsters or gentrification. But and we're gonna, I don't know. I don't remember that they referenced where we're at, but it's going to be shot in Western Portugal. So that's what I'm supposed to go to. It's a really good script that Michael Imperial is producing. And he's the film that I worked with this director on was in the Tribeca Film Festival along with Goodfellas uh, when we did the anniversary last year. And Robert De Niro had us all out there, which was great. I'm trying to think. I, you know what? I did an episode of that Adventures of uh, the Unbreakable uh, Kimmy Schmidt on Netflix. That is a wild, wild film. 
I'm actually trying to get on the other side and producing stuff. Did this thing in Sweden. It's a show we're trying to do this. There was one serious, like, uh, sci-fi uh, mystery type type film we were trying to get done. Uh, uh, they were going to involve me in acting and producing, but also now we're, we're talking about doing a um, Top Gear type of show. You know that Top Gear, only about tech gadgets. And there's a few things here. I have a few, uh, I sound like the old man. Like, oh, so I have some projects, but uh partner we're trying to get it done with, with uh, couple of interesting people with uh, really good directing track records and TV and uh, a couple of interesting scripts trying to do that. So till I'm actually real about it, I'll, I can't, I won't say anything because, you know, not only Jenkson, but unless it's really real, I did a couple of interesting, this uh, young, young actor director who uh, my friend taught school had these, these uh, young people have six shorts that they want to make one film of about relationships. So, I um, played this guy conflicted, this blue collar guy married, you know, conflicted about his own sexuality, sees his old friend or whatever. This that was that that I don't know what became of that. I got to call the guy. Cinematic Misadventures of Ed Wood. What kind of possessed you and Charles Pratt to write this? It was as much this movie as anything else. This movie had kind of stoked a fire of interest within both of us. And we had seen the, the main Ed Wood movies, the movies that everybody's seen. But uh, we were curious, you know, about the movies that you don't see, which there are more than 20 movies that most Ed Wood fans still haven't seen. And they're probably better off for having not seen them. But we uh, we cover them in the book, and we try to make the chapters funny like we would expect this, the movies to be. They're not always really funny, the movies. A lot of times they're more sad than funny, just because of the depth that he sinks to in the pornographic world, even in that milieu. His desperation sometimes was a little bit sad. But um, we were big fans of Wood, and we still are big fans of Wood, but... I'd say I'm more a fan of the naive image that this movie gives of Ed Wood than the real Ed Wood, if that makes sense. No, it totally makes sense. He's kind of like a, almost a Boy Scout in the film. Yes, he is. Well, and at the end of the movie, you know, they kind of gloss over. They put up a, a card that says that he went in to do nudie monster movies after that, which kind of glosses over the fact that he was doing hardcore pornography at some of the points. And, mo- and they didn't have monsters in them. Maybe one or two have supernatural elements, but most of them... Are, are porn, flat out. I, I mean, I've read some of his books, and those are definitely dirty. Most of them are very dirty. Yes. And he definitely tended to gravitate back toward the things that he really liked, like Angora sweaters. And, you know, one thing we found when we did the book that we thought was fascinating and kind of sad is that in Glenn or Glenda, he begs for the acceptance of the public for people that are transvestites. He really, in several of his movies, really looks down upon and has really negative things to say about gay people. And also his depictions of rape are kind of um, less than PC, you might say. I know a lot of these movies were fairly readily available. I remember seeing Jail Bait and The Sinister Urge, but it sounds like you dug a little bit deeper than that. 
we did, um, you know, we just scoured the Internet, and uh, we got lucky. A few of them came out this last year. There were three that had never been officially released, one that had been waiting for a release but had been bootlegged all over the place. They were all pornography, um, but they were released with right at the end of the book. So we actually had to back up the book a few months so we could get copies in hand and cover those. But uh, the book was a blast, and it was interesting to learn about Ed Wood. And I am still fascinated by Wood because, you know, he had very little talent but a lot of drive. And that kept him in the film industry in one way or another for a long period of time. And I think that says a lot for what drive and enthusiasm, you know, can really bring. Tell me what you found as far as what the real Ed Wood was like versus the Ed Wood of the movie. Of course, I know the movie is built for a movie-going audience. We're not going to see warts and all. We're going to see a very straightforward structure, first act, second act, third act. But how does that compare to what the real Edward was like as far as what you found? Um, well, the big thing is the thing that we talked about in the Orgy of the Dead episode, for me, and that's sort of the myth of uh, him being uh, a director that takes one take on each shot. You know, And they go so far in the movie as to say... Uh, Eddie's fucking brilliant. You know, he can shoot 35 scenes in a day, which isn't necessarily accurate. We found the outtakes of Take It Out and Trade, which is a lost film, uh, lost pornography film. In the outtakes, you can clearly see that he did sometimes 15 takes of the same scene. They were all equally bad because he was not a good director. But, you know, they, they looked like they might have been the only take that had been taken. But sometimes you'd see, you know... 10 and 15 takes of the same scene over and over again. So, you know, he did try to protect himself, uh, or at least by the end of his career he did, but he just didn't always have the skills to really go about it the right way, I think. And as far as uh, Ed's, some of his demons, what were some of those that you found? He was a huge alcoholic, apparently, just a huge alcoholic, and they gloss over that in the movie. You know, I recently read a story about uh, Bela Lugosi's ex-wife, saying that uh, he had stolen a dress of hers out of the bathroom one time, and she caught him wearing it somewhere, which is also interesting because in the movie, he meets Bela after he's already left his wife, or his wife has left him. So apparently they actually did have some you know, interconnecting storyline in real life. Um, I think the movie does a great job. Of, it takes a lot of dramatic liberties, uh, some of which are a lot of fun. I think that it really serves the film... Johnny Depp's naive sort of portrayal of Wood. You know, I, I think it's a great, great film. But um, as far as Wood goes and his demons, I think his big one was his alcoholism. That, that's eventually pretty much what killed him. Now, as far as some of those liberties that they took, I know you have a good story about the Orson Welles meeting. Uh, yeah. Uh, as you know, I did a book with Gary Graver called Making Movies with Orson Welles. And Gary Graver was Orson Welles' longtime cinematographer for something like the last 15 years of his life. Gary told me one time, nobody does Orson right in movies. When they portray him in movies, it's never right. The only one that really gets it right and captures the man is Ed Wood. And he loved D'Onofrio's performance, and he just spoke so highly of it. But he told me the one way that I know that that story is not accurate is that uh, I never could get him to eat at Musso and Frank's which is the restaurant that uh, he runs into him in the uh, film. He said, I never could get him to eat there. He said, I tried for years to get him to eat there, but he wouldn't eat there. He said the big thing with Orson was Orson liked to introduce people to restaurants that he liked, and he really got a thrill out of that. 
but he never wanted to eat anywhere that anybody else wanted to eat, which I thought was kind of a funny story. But And also interesting in that scene, I might point out, uh, because it's not pointed out very often, that the bartender is played by the real Conrad Brooks. I'm not surprised he doesn't have any lines because, you know, we made a movie called Zombiegeddon with Conrad a few years ago, and Conrad's a really awful actor, even by awful actor standards. Uh, even by wood standards, Conrad Brooks is a terrible actor. A pretty nice guy, but just a horrendous actor. So I don't know if maybe he had lines that got removed, but I, I think he's got one line that's like, here's your drink. I remember for a while it was like independent filmmakers would flock to him or uh, Lloyd Kaufman and put them in their movies as if they gave them some sort of like indie cachet. Well, you know, and we were one of the first ones to do that. We had both of those guys in there, but but you're right. You know, and our movie actually was one of the very, very first microfilms to really have a cast of well-known actors. And uh, we're proud of that. You know, for whatever deficiencies the movie itself has, that's something that we've been proud of because it's been imitated time and time again since, trying to have sort of an all-star cast, which, you know, may consist mainly of uh, washed-up convention actors, but, you know, still it was an all-star cast for a movie shot on a very, very low budget. Well, and it's nice to see some of those folks working. It is, it is. The one that we were really happy to have was Ed Neal, uh, Edwin Neal, who was in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And it was funny because when he walked in, it was like, holy shit, here's a real actor. When he acted, even in the room, it felt real. And that was something that, you know, you didn't experience with the Conrad Brookses. Getting back to Wood's later films, I had heard so many different things about the film Venus Flytrap. Can you kind of clear that up for me as far as what his involvement was with that film? Um, I'm trying to remember. Uh, Venus Flytrap is definitely one of my favorites of his later films. He wrote it. It was released in Japan, I believe. It was a sci-fi film, and it's definitely sort of a return to form for him. And it's got a lot of the old staples of you know his storylines. There's a sort of a jungle swamp nearby, and just all these really weird things, and it, but it's a blast. It's a really, really fun movie. Definitely one of the very best movies of his last, you know, 10 years. He was making so much porn right around this time, and, and so many of them, it felt like. Because like, that same year, actually it was a year later, uh, Necromania came out, which I had been warned about seeing like years ago. And it was like, please just do not ever even lay your eyes on this film. Yeah, it's pretty bad. Uh, so Venus Flytrap... Even though most people don't really know it, it's definitely a high point in there. And I, I might point out that right after I finished this book, I found out that Ed Wood was actually had worked on another movie that most people don't know about, and it's called Meat Cleaver Massacre. And it's worth looking up. But I actually got the cinematographer to admit that, uh, or to tell us that um, Wood directed several scenes of the film just to help out, and he hung around on the set a lot. And there's actually an actor that appears to be Ed Wood in one scene and is credited as Ed Wood. Now, some people uh, do dispute whether or not this is really him. Maybe it's some other goofy-looking man named Ed Wood that just happens to be there. But like I said, the cinematographer told us flat out that, you know, he did assist on the movie. And as low as Meat Cleaver Massacre may be down the, the food scale of films, it is still another sort of high point for Wood at that time at the end of his career, when he was really mired in hardcore pornography. Now, are there any good porn films that he did? Not really. Some of the stuff like Orgy of the Dead, which is sort of softcore, you wouldn't even call it like porn, but it's right on the cusp. It's fun. 
It still has those Woodian qualities to it. Uh, one of the things that we point out in the book that I found fascinating was that Wood, you know, wrote an essay and uh, wrote some stuff really against pornography and porn producers saying they were just basically the scum of the earth. And then within just a few years later, he himself was making porn, which tells you, you know, to what desperate levels he would go to, to get published or to, to get a movie out there or just to be working. And when it came to his early work, kind of bouncing, I'm sorry, I'm bouncing back and forth in chronology here, but uh, as far as the, the whole story of him getting the gig doing um, Glenn or Glenda, does that ring pretty true as far as what was in the Burton film? Um, as far as I've, what I've seen, it's pretty true. Now, I've got to guess that some of it is uh, you know, artistic liberty because it's just too good of a story the way it's told. You know, it seems pretty close. It does seem like he basically bullshitted his way into that job and uh, by presenting that he was going to make a movie that really was not what he made. And, and it's a fun movie. You know, uh, I don't know what his relationship was like with uh, Georgie, the producer, after the film was made in real life, but uh, the setup to get there seems pretty accurate. Now, was he one to use the stock footage as oh, much he as used he stock did? And... like crazy. He even, you know, he would use stock footage like... Well, here's some shitty stock footage. I can stick this into a movie somewhere. And and I think he did actually write around found stock footage, found ways to integrate it in. You know, most famously, obviously, is that Buffalo scene from Glenn or Glenda, which is just silly and bizarre and kind of atrocious, but sort of perfect in the, you know, as far as it being an Ed Wood film. I mean, you wouldn't change that for the world because it's just so goofy. It's almost avant-garde. It is. It is, isn't it? He's almost doing a little Bruce Connor beforehand. Right, right. And, you know, one of the things I think that this movie does really well that it doesn't get, doesn't get talked about enough is the casting is perfect. Like George the Animal Steel as Tor Johnson. How could you ever find a better Tor Johnson? And somebody I noticed when I went back and rewatched the movie is Max Casella, who plays uh, little Paul Marco in the movie. And, uh, you know, he's on vinyl now, the HBO series, and he's just really this kind of rugged, rough, tough guy on that show. But when you watch Ed Wood, he's just got a little baby face, just looks like a sweet little guy. And I think the dialogue in this movie is amazing. I'd credit, uh, you know, the two screenwriters, Scott and Larry, because, you know, some of the dialogue is hilarious. My three favorite lines are, nobody gives two fucks for Bela. That is my favorite uh, another one that Landau has is, let's shoot this fucker. And then uh, the Sarah Jessica Parker line, Wood Productions, the mark of quality. Those are my three favorite lines by far. And I think those guys did a brilliant job. And one thing that I did find out when I interviewed Larry, and he probably told you this, was that uh, the script that they shot was pretty much the first draft, which is amazing. Yeah, I was re reading the book of the script and watching the movie at the same time. And it's just the missions. The only changes it seems like are just omitting a couple things. And there's a lift of some dialogue from one place to another, right. just to omit his uh, second wife in there. But yeah, it is uh, one of the, the least tinkered with scripts that I've ever dealt with on this show. I think it's brilliant. And I think it's one of the definite high watermarks for Tim Burton. Uh, it's my favorite Tim Burton film. Maybe Mars Attacks is close, but that's my favorite. So what are you working on these days? Working on lots of stuff. I've got a collection of novellas coming out through a Japanese publisher 
later in the year, and it's called Skrilla, which is uh, an urban slang term for money. It's three crime novellas. I'm fin- finishing up my book on Quentin Tarantino, which you are in. Uh, as you know, I've been working on that for the 20 years I've known you. So I'm happy that that's finally going forward. And then lots of other things that I can't really talk about right now, you know, because some of them are still kind of tied up. And I am doing another Tarantino-related film. Uh, I'm working on a book with Craig Hammond, the uh, co-writer and co-director with Tarantino, of an early film called My Best Friend's Birthday. And we're doing a book on My Best Friend's Birthday, uh, which will examine, you know, how they made the movie and the script and all that and have original photographs. So I think that's going to be fun. You know, Steve Pachowski called that movie the Rosetta Stone of Tarantino's work, and I could really see that when I finally watched it. Right, right, right. And Steve Pachowski's a great guy, by the way. He's sort of my boss over there at Shock Cinema. A great guy. I'm, I think he's especially great today because he just put some money in my bank account today. So I'm a big fan of his today, especially. <laughs> three cheers for Steve Pachowski. Right, three cheers. I had heard that Tarantino was retiring after, what, his 10th film? Supposedly. But, you know, he, he talks so much about shit that he'll never do or that he wants to do. And, you know, I mean, he, he's a tremendous talent, I think. Uh, you know, we may differ on how much we think he's talented, but I will say that he's, you know, kind of full of shit at times. I won't disagree with that. Do you have a chapter of the films that Tarantino never made? I do. I do. Well, I, or I was going to. I guess the book has evolved so far. At one time, it was going to be a companion. And then a book called the Quentin Tarantino FAQ came out. And it was basically the book that I was making. So, the, so I basically took out the interviews, which were the best part of the book by far anyway, and uh, made it just a collection of interviews about Quentin Tarantino. So the name of the book is going to be called Conversations on Quentin Tarantino, which is kind of a generic title, but it sort of sums up what it is. Right. Well, maybe you'll come up with something snappy in the interim. Maybe. So, Andrew, if people are interested in reading more of your work, where can they go to find it? I always tell people the easiest place to find my work is on Amazon. Pretty much everything I've written is still in print. Just working on my, I think, 29th book. I had a novella that just fell out of print here recently. So so it's not all in print, but most of it is. You know, I'm a little bit biased, but I I like my books. So there you go. They say as a writer, and I'm sure you'll attest to this, that you, when you write nonfiction, you're basically writing the book that you would like to see as a fan. Andrew Rausch, the hardest working man in show business books, I thank you very much for your time. Hey, thank you for having me on again, buddy. Welcome back. This week we were talking about the film and filmmaker, Ed Wood. So we did hear from Lydia Kavina, and I have to say I was very glad to talk to her. And really, uh, I have to thank you, Steve, for um, pointing that out to me that I should be talking to her because she's got such an amazing career and she plays into the score so well. And this is one of the first times that Tim Burton didn't use Danny Elfman for the score. And I can't say I really noticed a difference with this one. It just, it felt right to me. Everything really clicked. And if anything, it it didn't have that same Danny Elfman feel. And I kind of like that. Yeah. Initially I was disappointed not seeing his name on the credits. 
But over time, I think it's probably better for the movie. You know, it's it's a little more toned down, I think, than the typical Danny Elfman score. Like, there's not a lot of, uh, I don't know, giant choirs or, you know, strings going all over the place. It was just very, very simple, um, deceptively simple, I would say, because some of the stuff that he's doing is pretty complicated. But and a little bit... Uh, I loved the the use the use of dissonance is really works here. For me, it was um, you know was Howard Shore. So Howard Shore, I know mostly from uh, his stuff with Cronenberg, uh, and it has this uh, 1950s feel to me. Like I mean, with the bongos and the kind of the jazzy elements, and then um, I'm a big fan of sort of I guess what you would call. Um, Exotica or Space Age Bachelor pad music from the 50s. So people like Martin Denny and, and Juan Garcia Esquivel and, and then modern in this era in the 90s, uh, there was a group called Combustible Edison that sort of took up the mantle of that it was sort of the opposite coin of the whole swing revival, if you remember that. And I really loved that it had that kind of feel at times that it was playing into this sort of Exotica stuff where um, yeah, it's kind of oriental sounding, but it's not technically Asian music. It's sort of, um, taking elements of Hawaiian and all of this other stuff that isn't necessarily native. It's what people think it might be. Sort of like Chinese food in a way. It's not really Chinese food. It's, it's an Americanized, uh, idea. Yeah, it's that kind of, uh, that whole post war, uh, soldiers coming back from Hawaii, like, you know, bringing that sound with them. And then I think, uh, the theremin. It, it definitely um, transports you back to the fifties, even though I don't think Ed would ever used a theremin on any of his scores or any of the library music that he used. I mean, it just, it really helps to set the mood yeah. um, and the time period. Well, I think it, it definitely plays into the, the one that most people would know from that era of its use in a score would be the day the earth stood still. So it's that sort of creepy sound and, and then obviously into the sixties, uh, good vibrations and things like that, where people heard theremins uh, used. Steve's got some information about good vibrations in the theremin. It's a bombshell. Get yeah. ready. So the instrument used on good vi- vibrations was not actually a theremin. See, we just um, learned something kids. Yeah, it was, uh, Kind of an Americanized version of a French instrument that was like the theremin, but you have uh, you kind of have a fretboard that you can visualize where the pitches are. So it's not as ethereal when you're playing it. You're not really you're not looking for the notes in the same way that you are on a theremin. So fun fact. <laughs> well, well, my favorite band that currently uses a theremin is based out of Detroit, and uh, that would be the Amino Acids. So ah uh, uh, yes. So if you're into uh, basically surf punk with uh, with sci-fi, corny 50s sci-fi themes, no lyrics, just uh, sort of surf music with uh, played really fast, uh, they use a lot of samples from 50s songs, uh, 50s films, and then also a theremin on stage. And I just Correct. finally found a use for my own theremin on a piece of music after, <laughs> I think I bought it. 10 or 15 years ago, and I finally found a use for it. I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I want to say that there was theremin being used in Tim Burton's next film, Mars Attacks. Yeah, but I think, uh, I'm not sure why he didn't use Lydia, but I think it's a different player. Well, yeah, it seems like Lydia and, and Howard Shore, um, you know, they ended up working together a couple times. 
And so I don't know if it was just, I'm not going to use the same person because he was working that again with Danny, uh, Danny Elfman. So I don't know if Danny was like, yeah, I'm not going to use the same person that you just used with Howard Shore. I'm sure his extended, uh, set of musicians from Oingo Boingo. I'm sure one of those guys probably plays yeah. Thurman. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. And I was really happy to see Corla Pandit show up in the film. And at first I was just like, is that somebody that looks like him or is that really him? So it was one of those like stick around for the credits and see if his name actually showed up. And sure enough, it was really him. And talk about a holdover from those days of Exotica. I mean, he was one of the players back then, you know, going into, uh, I think we would call it the, uh, good life section at WCBN and seeing the Les Baxter and the Martin Denny, you would find the Corla, the Corla Pandit records back then too. And it's just like, wow. Okay. And some great, great stuff that he was doing. So I was really happy to see him show up and be featured so prominently in the film during that whole striptease, uh, party for bride of the Adam section. And to still be so uh, lively on his instrument. At uh, I mean, how, he was, what, 70 or so when they shot that? He had to have been, yeah. Well, I'm sure the turban helps, you know. <laughs> the mystic helps. powers. Yeah, it helps. And it helps cover up the age stuff, too. So he could have been bald under that. He could have had, had a big old wrinkly skull going on. He could have had a face in the back or, of his face. <laughs> like or an entirely pot, new pottery. alien head up there. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Whispering commands to him. Yeah, the one thing I was very happy to see, kind of going back to the film a, a little bit, was I like how, you know, Steve, you mentioned the soldiers coming back from the war and, and bringing things with them. I forgot about Ed's wartime experience and just how that helped shape uh, his art and seeing that opening play that they, that the whole film opens with this play section and seeing these two soldiers out on the battlefield and being visited by an angel and everything. I, I didn't pick up the first few times that I saw this, just how much the war plays into this. This definitely is one of these kind of post-war, you know, it's in, it almost feels a little noirish as far as the way that the war has affected Ed as our, our hero, because he does bring up the war quite a few times, even to the point where he's talking about, you know, wearing his, uh, his uh, bra and panties under his outfit when he's uh, parachuting into, you know, some bad situations. And then him being kind of a injured veteran, too, with his, all of his teeth being missing, or his front teeth, front top teeth being missing. So I, I didn't pick up on that the first few times that I saw this, but I was glad to see that uh, he is kind of given some weight by that. Uh, he seems to have um, some issues when it comes to coming back from the war, and I was glad to see that. kind of noticed that a lot more um, this last time that I watched it, too. And if I were a snobbier film person, I might say something like, uh, you know, horror films um, – being inspired by the, the disfigured soldiers of World War One, you know, and and we've got this icon of of horror standing at the door on on uh, All Hallows Eve, and he's rather impotent at that point. But the actual, I guess, war wound, for lack of a better term, is the one that's actually frightening to the, the children. Right. I thought that was kind of interesting. And then I did like that whole thing, too, where, um, I mean, the big speech that I mentioned before that uh, Bella gives, 
that that actually has some political ramifications too. that whole thing where Hungary wants him to come back and he's not sure what they would do to him if he came back, you know, just uh, would they treat him like a king? Would they put him in a gulag or, you know, what, what would happen to him? So he's just doesn't want to go back to home. He has no home anymore. And so I love that that speech has that real resonance to it. And I love how uh, the music cue at that point, it really starts off, you know, this melancholy sadness where you're feeling for Bella, the character, but then it suddenly, it turns on a dime as soon as he talks about uh, atomic race of Superman. And then the music, the music gets kind of kitschy and over the top. And I just, uh, yeah, that's just a great, great little scene there. Home. I have no home. Hunted. Despised. Living like an animal. The jungle is my home. But I shall show the world that I can be its master. I shall perfect my own race of people. A race of atomic supermen that will conquer the world. We were talking a little bit offline, too, about uh, Howard Shore's score for this. And I always like when it can be just a little you know, passage here or there, but I always enjoy when composers kind of quote themselves. And I know that you had found a, a, a musical quote from Ed Wood and another Howard Shore score. I hadn't rewatched the film yet, but I was listening to the commentary track as I was uh, walking my dog around the neighborhood. And in the background, you could hear the closing music um, where they leave the theater and you've got this really kind of sweet, sweet melody that then starts to morph uh, into a little darker territory. Uh, Stop. I'm like, wait a minute. That, that sounds really familiar. And uh, I came home, uh, looked up Lord of the Rings and the cue in Ed Wood is it's almost a prototype of the, the one ring Leap motif that shows up all through the Lord of the Rings. So if you listen to that last track of the Ed Wood soundtrack, I'm not sure what the, the name of the track is offhand, but listen to that about maybe 30 seconds in and then go to YouTube and bring up the prologue one ring to rule them all. And you'll kind of hear how it's um, the, the one ring theme has a, a less notes, but it's definitely there's some similarities going on there. And I don't know, I'm sure I'm not the first person to have noticed that, but I'd never seen it um, written anywhere. Well, Jeffrey Jones would tell you about something that has too many notes in it. There are, in fact, only so many notes the ear can hear in the course of an evening. That's true.
it's funny that you say that, Steve, because we actually talked about Howard Shore a little bit before when we were doing Nothing Lasts Forever. And there are, uh, Rob, you noticed this, that there was music in Nothing Lasts Forever that was then used in one of Kevin Smith's films. There's the, um, the song on the moon that is in uh, Dogma, which is the theme song for the movie's um, fast food chain. So apparently um, in some of these littler films, Howard's going to recycle stuff for some of his bigger films. Well, I mean, with nothing lasts forever, he could probably recycle the whole score because most people haven't seen it. So <laughs> it's, it's, uh, if you want to know the, the, the checkered history of the release of that thing, go go listen to that episode we did. Sadly, um, that thing needs to be released. And, you know, we've been uh, banging the drum on it for a while. But, um, you know, hopefully it will someday. Yeah, and then the last time it was supposed to play on Turner Classic Movies, it got yanked. Like the day that it was supposed to play, they suddenly announced, "Nope, nope, sorry, folks. Yeah, no, nothing lasts forever here. Nothing to see here. Keep moving." I uh, just have to say that if you haven't seen Nightmare of Ecstasy or read it, uh, excuse me, make sure to read that. You know, if you enjoy this film, hopefully it's a gateway drug into all these other places, such as reading up on. Bela Lugosi or reading up on Vampira or watching the rest of Edwards films or whatever, because that's kind of what it did for me. Regardless if it's a fictionalized account, I still think it's a rather inspirational account for um, anyone who's a creative type. Yeah, it is such a, a love letter to filmmaking, you know, and it just really does not just filmmaking, though, pretty much any dream that you might have. If there's something out there that you want, this film really talks to that whole idea of just going for it. And that's one of the things I like, too, is that Ed, with his group, his ragtag group of oddballs and misfits, that everybody is pulling for him, and they're all working for one another. You know, there's no, once Dolores Fuller gets out of the scene, there's no bad seed amongst there. And now you could say that he's just living in an echo chamber of people telling him what he wants to hear, but actually what I think it is more is people who are being supportive of him rather than just being a bunch of sycophants. Yeah, and also seeing, you know, that they are capable of, uh, you know, joining that journey. Like, you know, you, you hear so many people say, oh, I wish I could make a movie. Well, make a movie. Ed did it. And I think I was uh, was watching, is it Look Back in Angora? Is that yes. that's one of the documentaries? Or There were a couple on YouTube that I was watching in preparation. And it mentioned um, several people who had worked with Ed and then went on to bigger things. So, I mean, you know, not only was his fictional representation like inspiring people, but the actual Ed, you know, was inspiring his stable of actors and, you know, is it Dolores that went on to write songs for Elvis? That's pretty incredible. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And some damn good ones too. I mean, Rock a Hula Baby is pretty awesome. Which I have uh, was remade, um, I think maybe ten odd years back by uh, Junior Brown on oh, one nice. of his albums. So I'm a big Junior Brown fan. So I, I looked at it and I was like, oh, and there's her name on the credits of the song. And I came across another clip uh, on YouTube of her getting a Lifetime Achievement Award uh, for some from the grammy foundation i think or the or ascap maybe crazy she did well yeah yeah and i would say before you start throwing around things like edward made the worst movies ever made i would say go ahead and try to make your own damn movie and then see uh if you do any better than edward could just putting that out there put it this way um we've talked about manos before 
and Manos is excruciating at 65 minutes to watch without a commentary by the by the lovable scamps over at MST3K. Uh, I could probably watch an Ed Wood film without commentary from someone. It it, it actually moves. Yeah, sure, there are some aspects that are a little fu- little funky, but no, it's far from being the worst stuff ever made. While it's nice that the Medved brothers helped kind of bring new light to a lot of filmmakers through their golden turkeys and all these kind of things, it's very much a backhanded compliment. But uh, I'm glad that they they did that. But at the same time, it's like, yeah, you guys really don't have room to talk about doing really bad work. Has any other director on the Golden Turkey list achieved the same notoriety as Ed? I mean, is he the the top? Well, he was definitely he was voted their worst filmmaker, I think. Yeah, I'm not sure who else was on the list though. Just wondering why we don't know many more names from that list. Yeah, that would be a good thing to look up. I probably should do that. <laughs> when you look at the other stuff that's on Mystery Science Theater, for example, the oeuvre of Coleman Francis, for example, that stuff's hard to watch compared to Ed Wood. Well, yeah, I mean, God, uh, uh, try to watch Side Hackers sometime. Robot Monster. Plus, you also have to remember that the Medved brothers who wrote that book when they wrote it in, what, 78, 79? didn't have the huge outlay of um, videotape that would come about in the 80s and 90s when there was so much stuff that was released. So so this, I, I'd have to say, they'd have to go back and retitle that book, uh, the, the worst films ever made that you could only see on TV or in a theater. So it's, you know, some of that stuff that eventually went to VHS, woof. Yeah, yeah. when they were scraping the bottom of the barrel there, <laughs> a yeah. lot of stuff. Worst performance as Jesus Christ was Ted Neely in Jesus Christ Superstar. Worst black exploitation film, Scream, Blackula Scream. Jesus, just does not do it for me. Sorry. All right, I'm going to get out of here. Um, or else I'll just obsess over this list. The most popular spectator sport in America is not the Super Bowl or the Olympics or the World Series or the heavyweight championship. It's the beauty pageant. From the moment she's born, every girl is eligible. All it takes is a pretty face, a little talent, a lot of luck, and a great big smile. Smile, though your heart is aching. Smile. Smile. The story of a teenage beauty pageant. The girls who enter it. The people who run it. And what it does to a small American town. Just be yourselves. And keep smiling. I know y'all came to see a whale of a show. And a whale of a show it is. Wow, any real bookers this year? Oh, you man. Our club has spent a lot of time and money trying to help these young people become responsible adults. <laughs> Rotting maggots of death. Everything counts up here. Your grades, your personality, the judges' conference. Select a girl that you would be proud to have as your own daughter. What would you do if your best friend was unwed and pregnant? Excuse me? Could you tell us why you think you'd like to go into missionary work? I like helping people. That's what this game is all about. I want to be a veterinarian or a nun. (laughs) 
You didn't jump up and down enough when Miss Woodland won. Beauty contest judges like their emotions big. I've smiled so much my gums are raw. Well, put some Vaseline on your teeth. It, it helps your... <laughs> Listen to me. It helps your lips cry You're all kidding me. No. All the girls do it. I can see why you want to help these girls. They seem very uh, worthwhile. Oh, my God! Right on, son. We're not really competing with each other. We're more friends. We have faith. We have now, if you just keep smiling, you can win. Smile, what's the use of crying? It's every parent's hope and every girl's dream to be all an American girl should be and wear that winning smile. Just smile. That's right. We're back next week where we'll be talking about the film Smile on a star-studded episode of The Projection Booth. Before we go, I want to thank this week's guest co-hosts, Steve Schultes and Rob St. Mary. Steve, what are some of the projects that you've been working on lately? Currently working on a film called American Prophet. True story about a young hockey-playing priest uh, here in Detroit who is called up to be a a bishop um, just after the uh, 1967 riots film I scored called The Cabining is now on HD On Demand, I think in most places, uh, and then iTunes and Amazon. Um, that's about it. Where did you use your theremin last? Oh, I last used my theremin on uh, a little short called Friendlies, um, a little alien abduction thing that I did with uh, director Steve Copera. Kind of a, a fun little thing we, were, we did while we're waiting to shoot a feature. And Mr. St. Mary, as always, it is great to have you back. How is everything going for you? Uh, still insanely busy, but um, trying to enjoy my life as much as possible. I continue to plug away at uh, Pushing the Orbit Book, won a uh, 2016 Michigan Notable Book Award for it. And uh, this month, starting in April, we'll be doing a little book tour, libraries, April, May, and June. And all the information is available at uh, my new website, robstmary.com. So it's robstmary.com, and you can find out uh, all about the various stuff i got going on. And plus, if you have an interest in uh, getting an autographed copy of the book and you happen to live out of the area, you can get it there. And then also, if you want one of those really groovy uh, Orbit t-shirts like Quentin Tarantino War and Pulp Fiction, you can get that there as well. So, And also, if you just want to say hi, more than willing to... Uh, Say hi. Are you over on the Twitters? I'm on the Twitters, as always, Rob DET, at Rob DET. So um, I hear from people from time to time. As a matter of fact, I walked into a record store in town here, a good friend of ours who listens quite often and said, hey, what happened to you? And I said, well, you know, got too busy. I had to take a break. So, um, but uh, he still listens. He said, keep, uh, keep on trucking, Mike White. 
I did not put a hit out on Rob's life, so and he is not trapped in a hole in my basement where I lower a microphone down to him once a month. It talks into the microphone again, or it gets the hose again. Yes, you will, precious. You will get the hose. Well, thank you again, Stephen Rob, for coming on the show, and thanks to everybody for listening. Be sure to go on over to our website, projection-booth.com, for more information about what you heard today and links to things like our Patreon page, our Facebook, our Twitter, and our iTunes, where I encourage everybody to rate and review the show. We only have 157 ratings on the show, and we sure have a whole hell of a lot more listeners than that. So do your part to help the Projection Booth take over the world. That's a wrap.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.